uh, uh, welcome, Chuck. Uh, and, uh, and thank you very much, Nick, uh, for all of your time today. Uh, saving, saving me a, a little bit of time. Uh, just listening, uh, not co-hosting. And every once in a while, you need to do that. Uh, Chuck, welcome. We do have uh, a lot of news tonight. Not as much news as we wish we had, because uh, operation security is really blacking out a lot of what we want to know. Yeah, today was a today was a big day for me to hit secondary sources and uh, try to squeeze the rock a little bit to get uh, some information out. But uh, there's some, uh, you know, there was there some interesting developments here. So we we've got that going for us, which is good. And Alan, it's good to good to hear you. And you know, I I do that myself. It's actually uh, we spend a lot of time getting ready for the show and doing the show and. I think we often forget that it's really kind of fun to listen sometimes, <laughs> just just to listen. We have great conversation just coming up here about uh, Africa and uh, the Sahel. And uh, I DM'd Alan on the side, folks, and spent, you know, I spent so much of my life dealing with uh, Salafist jihad, you know. So it was interesting to sit and listen to informed speakers, which we always have here, which is one of the things that's so wonderful about uh, Maria and the whole experience and everything that we do here and everything that we all do together, because that's uh, that's us listeners and uh, speakers. It's all mixed up. We're all happy to have you and listen to your your takes on everything. So, Alan, where should we go? There's lots of places to go here. Well, uh, the order of maps tonight, uh, starting with the second tweet, uh, we would begin uh, in Kremna, uh, and this uh, would be one of uh, what I would call the, the danger spots uh, for Ukraine, but it would, it would appear as, as intense as some of the Russian attacks have been, uh, Ukraine has successfully uh, fought them off and stabilized uh, their lines. Yeah, to the to the north of uh, the map we have up, which is the 1950 UTC map of today, uh, there were Russian gains uh, in the vicinity of Svatove, but they too appear to be petering out a bit. I was going to put a bigger map up of the P66 sort of whole area, but I ran out of time here before we went on. Uh, yesterday in Kremena was a big day for the Russians. They actually uh, gained more territory than they have here uh, in months. And their gains principally were south of Kremena uh, along the uh, Severodonetsk River, where they actually uh, went as far as five or six kilometers uh, Pretty significant gain, and uh, for this perennially uh, underachieving un underachieving section of of the Russian uh, zero line, uh, it was might have been the best day they've they've had maybe in the last year. Uh, somewhat alarmingly, uh, they also succeeded uh, in in attacks that uh, were on the the south bank of the Severodonetsk River. You know, that looked pretty bad. Uh, 
but as I was digging into it, uh, some things that are just sort of ironclad about combat have uh, have uh, had their effect. Uh, the, the Russian gains were principally in the uh, Sarabesque forestry. And again, I mean, we've talked about this all the time. A defender in a forested area is going to really exert a, a price on the aggressor. You go back to a World War II uh, a, a series of battles that America has liked to write out of the European war record were American losses in the Hurtgen Forest, uh, where for some reason America persisted in attacks against this very heavily wooded area. And the Germans, who were dug in using concealment and cover to the maximum, they were killing Americans by the hundreds every day. So we've got this same dynamic now going going forward here. Uh, Russia made some significant gains uh, south of Kremena, south of Dubrova, uh, but they have petered out now. Uh, Ukraine has stabilized a defensive line that goes pretty much south of Dubrova uh, and all the way across the Severodonetsk River. We talk about Russia uh, being able to achieve its early objectives, but not generally being able to hold on to them. So we'll see what happens now. I think there'll be more inertia in the back and forth here, because when the Russians go on the defensive, uh, and they will, uh, you know, all those factors of forest warfare will be in their favor. They're not in their favor if they're trying to advance, but they they uh, are in their favor in defense. Okay. But another thing that is is on the side of Ukraine is Ukraine does better in night operations. Uh, Ukraine uh, took over the Sarabetsk uh, Sarabansk uh, forest area by moving carefully forward with patrols, uh, advancing slowly using, you know, thermal and night vision devices, which are in wider use in the Ukrainian armed forces. And every Russian outpost there is going to come under uh, the tender mercies of Ukrainian scouts and snipers, etc., uh, it's about 1, 2.15 in the morning there right now. Uh, you can bet there are Ukrainians inching forward and there are contact points going on right now. Um, I want to put these Russian gains in perspective as well. Way back six kilometers to their east uh, today, Russia was carrying out airstrikes and artillery fire missions against Bilio Horvika. So that's telling us that the Ukrainians, even though the Russian forces are now six or seven kilometers to the west, uh, if you are a Russian soldier, you have to worry that there are Ukrainians lurking in the rear. Uh, don't want to consult the crystal ball too much, but I have a hunch that Russia will, over the next couple of days, lose these positions uh, in the forest. I think that Ukraine will be able to make life untenable for these guys and, and push them back. 
However, if the Russians are able to remain in the forest, it's going to it's going to cost them men, material, and resources. Again, that will fix them. Uh, you know, good on them. They've advanced six miles, but if they want to continue on this vector towards Liman, they're going to fight. It's going to be tree to tree for the next 10 kilometers. And that is a really tough way to do it. Because remember, you can pour, you can pour a battalion, you can, you can pour a regiment, you can pour a brigade into a forest. You can put in thousands and thousands of men, but they're going to wind up fighting squad to squad, right? It's, it's so very hard to get together anything bigger because you can't see farther than 50 yards generally in a forest. And I saw some video today uh, from this forest fight itself. And first of all, there's a vegetation you can't see. Then there was dust. Then there was smoke. And the net result was that you couldn't see more than 15 yards at a time. So... Russia has got itself. Uh, congratulations, you've gained six six kilometers. Uh, now look around. Uh, it's dark. It's the forest, and uh, there are Ukrainians all around you. Going north. Uh, go ahead. I was, Alan, I was just going to say, say, Chuck, that that video you're talking about is actually the sixth tweet uh, up in the nest that's worth looking at. It's a daytime video, uh, but you can still. Uh, begin to understand how difficult forest warfare is. And, and Chuck, you know, if uh, Russian forces want to continue to advance through this forest, you know, 10 kilometers more, it's not about the distance. It's about the time it would take them. You'd probably be talking about 20 days or more in order to do that. Yeah. And, you know, entering into this kind of terrain, uh, again, it, it, it's, it sounds odd, but a forest can be a lot like a city in that uh, your armor doesn't live up to its potential, your armored vehicles. You know, a main battle tank can go through a forest, folks. It can, it can rip through a forest. Not the redwoods, but, you know, the kind of forest you're probably used to. It can knock down most of the trees. But as you can imagine, that isn't very quiet. Uh, you're literally creating an open space around you, which is going to allow anti-tank weapons to come to bear on you. If you're going down a little forest road, I mean, you know, if I have to fight a tank, I want to do it in a forest because you're going to pop up behind it and you don't need a javelin or a brimstone or, you know, you, you just need an AT4. You just need an RPG because no matter what tank it is, if you can get a shot in the back against the engine compartment, you're going to, you're going to, you know, they're going to, they're going to enter the tourist turret toss competition. But again, you know, just as Alan is saying, uh, from where the Russians have stopped now, it is forest all the way to Liman and it's going to be hard for them to do it. I think the reason they got this far, frankly, is, uh, the Ukrainians weren't, you know, they had no big, uh, defensive uh, positions here in the forest, because if if any if there's anywhere that Ukraine is wants to fight uh, these Russian units, it's in the forest. 
So this would be a place where you'd really want them to come on because now, now you've got them, right? You've got them in this, you know, in, in, in terrain that, that is favorable to defenders. And then the lights go out at night and it is favorable to the Ukrainians who know how to operate in this forest. And remember, they, they took this all from the Russians. When the Russians pulled out of Liman back towards Kremena, the line of contact uh, conformed to the Zarebets River, which flows north and south through this forest. And Ukraine did its approaches to Kremena, not in the open area, but they patrolled in here. And Alan, remember, we were talking about this, that Ukraine was probably gaining about 100 meters a night. But, you know, 10 nights, you've got a kilometer, you know. 20 nights, you've got two kilometers. And they did that by picking off the Russian outposts and just pushing them back. So that's the kind of battle that's going to go on now. Uh, but the important and, thing... And also, Tom, yeah. you, wanted, you wanted to move north on the map, too. but uh, it, And I cut you off from doing that. I apologize. Oh, no, no worries. Absolutely not. Uh, you know, the fact that uh, Bilio Horvika is, is still held by the Ukrainians, uh, that's important uh, because you can't, you can't understate the significance of Ukrainian forces operating in the rear and astride the lines of communication and supply of the Russian forces uh, in the forestry area. And surprisingly to me, actually, uh, the Russians had this big thrust through the forest where they succeeded, but they launched another uh, another line of attack out of Kremena uh, down the o, o series, the 131-306, trying to get to Torsky, and once again, uh, they didn't make it. So Russian gains uh, to plus or minus here in Kremena, uh, Ukraine has done pretty well. And Chuck, I, I'm in a way, I'm I'm assuming all, all eyes, of course, are on the uh, the main thrusts of the Ukrainian counteroffensive. Uh, people expect this to be occurring uh, down in uh, 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 eastern Zaporizhia Oblast, western Donetsk uh, Oblast. But here in Kremlin, uh, it is a a, a, a risky. Uh, engagement uh, for Ukraine. Uh, they're fortunate to have the high ground uh, on the west of the Zarebets Reservoir. Are there any places that you see on the map where uh, Russia can can force a crossing of the of the reservoir uh, or the river? You know, Alan, they've got the force. They've got the force. They've got the men. They've got the artillery. They've got the air. They, they have everything they need to get to the Zarebets and cross it. Uh, I, I frankly would expect them to be able to do that anywhere. Uh, they haven't done it yet. Look, looking at the map, north, uh, north of the Zarebets res Reservoir, between Novodiane and uh, Nevsky, I would expect that the Russians, well, I, I don't know. You you can see the bluffs there on the uh, on the western side. Uh, Russia should be able to get across it. 
uh, they haven't been able to. I'm I'm surprised. Uh, I think that the Russians are are were hoping that uh, they'd have better luck in the forest because remember, was it let, let's call it two weeks ago? It might have been just ten days. Russia came out of the box here all around Kremena with a seven seven pronged assault that didn't work. Uh, they did actually launch some efforts in the forested area. But at that point, they, they concentrated on uh, Bilio Horvika. And they also came out a little bit uh, west of uh, Shiplikvika. Didn't go too far. Um, this was a big effort that the Russians put on here in, in the forest area. Uh, but I don't know how much farther they're going to get. Uh, but you know what? Good on them. But given the superiority that they've got here, Alan, you know, three, four, five, in some places, 10 to one, uh, they're still underachieving. And now that the line's stabilized, uh, I, I expect it probably to stay here where it is. But again, I think in a couple of days, a week, I think Ukraine will be pushing these guys back. And even if they don't, Right. Every Russian who is concentrated fighting in Kremena or Bakhmut or even north of Savatove, they are not where the real war is going on. So a fixing operation here, uh, you know, Ukraine is still is still performing a, a, an important task. And whether or not the Russians take five or ten more kilometers of forest, mm, so big picture, I, I, I don't count this as a loss for Ukraine, really. And, and we know how uh, well Ukraine does with uh, what I'll call minimal defensive forces, uh, always well positioned, uh, uh, always with pre-planned uh, artillery firing zones. And I think that there would be a lot of those uh, for Ukrainian artillery emplacements that to kill Russians on the the east of the Zarebets, uh, uh Reservoir. So, yeah. Right. And, you know, one of the things that's going against Russia here is, you know, this is a plantation forest, meaning this is a managed forest area. So there are, there are roads through here, right? So the lumber company can exploit the timber. But every single one of those roads, as Alan just said, it is pre-registered for artillery fire missions. So not only is it going to be costly for Russia to advance its troops and project power, it's going to be costly for them to resupply their forces. So, you know, that could explain why is it that the Russians were able to advance six kilometers in one night or, you know, a night and a day into this forest. Well, you know, this is, uh, this is briar rabbit, right? Don't throw me in the briar patch. Uh, <laughs> the Russians are in the briar patch here. So Chuck, we have some hands, uh, in this order. It's Guido, Fletch and G-Man Guido. Uh, so, hello. Good, good evening. Uh, thank you for everything as always. Uh, Tonight, I have um, two questions. Actually, it, it's one very non-serious comment and, and a question. Um, I remember, Chuck, uh, when the uh, Prigozhin's 
uh, coup attempt happened, um, I remember you're telling how a coup goes, you know, the ABC, uh, the, the, the basics, you know, of, of how a coup should go. Um, and <laughs> funny enough, uh, the other day I was watching this Italian comedy of the 70s that was about a group of colonels that attempted a coup in Rome. Yeah, it was a comedy, a satire. And uh, truth is, the, the comedy was actually quite spot on. These these guys did actually everything that you get, you said a coup should have, like you know the communications, uh, you know the the airports, getting the prime minister, etc. Uh, but f f funny enough, th those are the things that Prigozhin did not even plan to do. <laughs> so, uh, the, the uh, base bottom line is. Uh, <laughs> Italian comedy beats Prigozhin at coup making, <laughs> and the other and the more serious question is: uh, given that the Russians have this huge buildup here in in this area, uh, uh, what can can they do with it, and uh, how far can they uh, how far can they reach with with that uh, with those troops and uh, equipment they have there, and what would the Ukrainians need to stop them? Well, thank you. Well, it you know it, it, there there isn't. Uh, I, I'm not sure what the Russians could actually do. Um, they 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 have had this superiority around Kremena for such a long time. Um, they haven't been able to get to the Zarebets River, let let alone the Oskil, which basically parallels it about 15 20 kilometers to the west um, and and even if they did you know uh, I, I'm sure this this part has been war gamed out as well uh, you know the money shot folks is is south right it is it is in Zafarista, which we're going to be talking about. It is in Orkiv. It is it is in Velika Novoslika, which we're going to be visiting there. That you know, that's pay dirt. Up here in Krumena, Kupiansk, uh, Bakhmut, you know, n not so much. So, I think Ukraine is really doing the right thing. And they have essentially minimally committed resources uh, to this northeastern sector of the war. Uh, I think they've done that for all, for all the reasons, right? The, the, the money shot is getting to, uh, to the Sea of Azov. But it, it, that doesn't have to happen even this summer, right? But that's going to be the main effort. And what Russia is doing right now, you know, rather desperately, is they are trying to get, you know, trying to pressurize the the Savtove, Kupiansk, uh, Kremena, Bakhmut area here to get Ukraine to, you know, put more resources in, you know, in the east. And I don't think Ukraine's falling for it. In fact, I, 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 I know they're not falling for it. And Ukraine realizes... Uh, you know, the elephant in the room that maybe the Russians are hoping Ukraine doesn't realize is that 
Ukraine can afford to give back all the territory to the Oskil River. Uh, you know, I wouldn't go that far. Let's let let's let's not say that. But Russian gains in this particular theater of the war, they're just it it, it isn't it isn't that important. Uh, it it's almost more important to let Russia keep uh, keep fighting here. I mean, so it it really could be, for example, in the Sarabets forestry that you know that's why Ukraine fell back because just as the Russians were you know permitted to come into the highly negative terrain of Bakhmut and get ground up, uh, you know, you could make the argument that we're watching the same thing happen in the forest down here. Uh, and again, I mean, it, it could, this could change and it could change very quickly, but the, the Russians have had so much superiority here for so long and they've done so little with it. I don't expect these forces to suddenly get their ducks in, in a row and start driving, uh, for Kramatogorsk. I just, I, I don't see it happening. The other thing that is going, that is that is on the side of the Ukrainians here, is that they have again, they've got internal lines of communication and supply, so they can easily turn themselves to meet any any Russian advance. And the other thing that the Russians have that is always going against them is, if they were to advance and and. And let's say on a five-kilometer, 10-kilometer front, they're able to push 25 kilometers in into Ukrainian-held territory. Well, there you go. They've created a salient, right? We know what happens. You stick it out. It gets bitten off. And that has happened to the Russians. It happens to them on the squad la- level, the company level, the battalion la- level. Every time they stage... An advance of any sort, it gets nipped off. And we'll tour the battlefield tonight, and uh, I'm going to tell you 10 or 15 examples that have happened in the last 36 hours. So this sector of the battlefield, I think uh, Ukraine is willing to trade a little dirt in order to keep the force posture of the enemy in the, in the places they want it. And Alan and I talk about this all the time. What would scare the hell out of me is if, is if the Russians pulled out of Bakhmut, backed up, uh, you know, backed up a little bit also in Kremena, adjusted their lines to the P-66 highway, stabilized their positions. That would scare me because it would tell me that the Russians are moving forces back so now they can do something smart with those guys instead of doing something stupid, which is what they're continuing to do. Uh, and we are going to go to Bakhmut uh, after Kremlin here, uh, but let's get through uh, our hands. Uh, it's Fletch, it's G-Man, it's Oivand. Fletch, please. Hi, Jack. You all right? Hey, bud. Good to, good to hear you, man. How you doing? Yeah, not too bad. Uh, yeah, I've been... 
got a bit of scuttlebutt and uh, I came across a couple of interviews as well, which might be relevant to this area. Um, now, your analysis, you know, since well, the, there. can you hear me? Yes, you're loud and clear. Fletch. We can hear you, Fletch. All right. Can you hear me, Chuck? I can, sir. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Um, just a bit of scuttlebutt and some interviews that came across regarding this particular area of operation. Um, first one, your analysis um, has always been the same as far as the Russians are concerned, that they advance and they get kicked back. Um, and that's pretty much how it's been going now. Because uh, what I've noticed, and I'm sure you've noticed as well, is that um, up to the Serbets Reservoir, um, I'm sure that the Ukrainians are inviting them to cross uh, because Bailo Horika, we, we remember that uh, river crossing because they have high ground. So that could be a kill area. Um, but some of the, um, the rumour on the scuttle is that they've been deploying a lot of um, cluster munitions, which have actually helped to push them back. That's the first point. Um, the second point, I came across an interview uh, regarding snipers, and I was quite astonished that some of the um, some of the statistics that uh, that came out of that. Now, U Ukraine has got a, an extensive and a very large sniper um, sniper crews who operate in normally teams of six, uh, and you know from your history, and I know from my history. You know, we, we, we can dig in and hide, but we'd never have about six with us. We normally have one, maybe two. Getting in and getting out was always the key key thing on sniping. You know, we used to have the old LAs. You may have you may remember those from years ago. I do. Anyway, yeah, yeah. And, and anyway, they, they're using teams of six. And Chuck, they 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 they're saying that they can they can target. Now they're using meters. We used to use the old yard system but they're using meters and they can go up to two kilometers and they are using armored piercing. So if they're employing, and I came across a statistic which shocked me really, second to artillery and drones, most of the kills of the Russians is through snipers. And that's something I wasn't aware of, but thinking about it with the numbers they're deploying. Now, you know that we've come across the abandoned vehicles now, they're saying in this interview that they can shoot the drivers in these vehicles and the rest run. So that might give an indication of why it's a high percentage. I think it's something like 38, 40% of vehicles are abandoned. So your analysis is, is are you going to stick to this analysis and say the Ukraine tend to invite them in, hammer them and draw and push them back? Would you agree with that scenario? Yeah, uh, that that happens a lot. And, uh, you know, there's a bunch of reasons why it could happen. And I think uh, the correct answer is all of the above, plus what you are saying. And, you know, I'll, I'll say one thing about the sniping, and it just slightly broadens it. If you train your riflemen to to hit what they're shooting at, and not just shoot, then, you know, their, their lethality is, you know, is, is off the charts. And, and 
you know, bear in mind, and I know you're aware of this, Russia has been sending, in air quotes, infantrymen to the front who've never fired their weapon in training. Okay, that's bad enough. That's just learning how to operate your army gun, right? But you and I both know if you want to be effective on the battlefield, you're issued a rifle. It's your rifle. And you zero that thing on the range. And every rifle that's issued by the, your country is, you know, the same. But you and I both know your rifle, you know all its quirks. You, you know, you have it dialed in the way you want it. And uh, Russia isn't doing that. And you're right. You know, I've heard of... of uh, you know, sniper kills out there to two, two and a half kilometers, folks. That's like a mile. And uh, you're using either anti-materiel rifles. You're firing a 50 caliber rifle. That means a bullet that's a half an inch in diameter. And also other, you know, higher caliber sniper, round, sniper rounds. But uh, even some of the older stuff, and Malcolm Nance was saying that he had, uh, you know, he'd been responsible for getting uh, upgraded M14 rifles, and that's that's the battle rifle that the United States Army used before the M16. But before anyone thinks, well, what would that antique be used for? Fires a 7.62 caliber bullet, which, believe it or not, at the beginning of World War II. That's the bullet that airplanes shot at each other. And that old M14 rifle is match quality. So, yep, I agree with you. Fletch, look, at, snipers are absolutely invaluable on the battlefield. And I hear that number six, you know, and to a SEAL, that sounds to me like you've got, we would call that many guys a boat crew. But that's the kind of element that could patrol in put a shooter up, uh, set security, uh, put some more eyes on target. So that's sounding like a special warfare task element to me. And that's good tactics as well. And just to a final add on that, Chuck, which uh, made me chuckle in a way, but they've also got a lot of female snipers, which they primarily use for all targets less than 600 meters. And the, and the information coming out is that a lot of them are in the forest area. So that might give an indication. And they're on target as well. Yeah, and you know, it, it, it's, it's actually true, folks, that women will generally shoot better than men. So when, you, when, when a woman gets marksmanship training, it has something to do with the musculature. They're, they're able to, to, to put a smoother and more precise trigger pull on it because well, there's a lot of things involved with learning how to shoot. But one of the magic things is in long range shooting, how to have that delicious show, slow, perfect trigger pull, right? And you, you, there's a whole thing. You, you zero the target, you go into this breathing, you completely relax, you slowly, slowly, slowly pull the trigger and you should be surprised when the rifle goes off. That's how you hit something at 600 yards and greater. So I'm not, I'm not surprised. The men and women who are fighting for Ukraine, look, 
women are also on the front lines doing everything that the men combatants are doing. You know, this, this is a war of national survival. And, uh, you know, my hats are off to the Ukrainian fighters, men and women both. Uh, thank you, Fletch. Uh, on to G-Man, Oivind, uh, Furious George, and uh, the angry uh, could be Corporal Ramus. But G-Man, go ahead. Uh, um, uh, good morning, Chuck. How are you? Hey, brother, you never sleep, my friend. <laughs> oh, you know, cotton ups now and again. Um, it seems to me, I think Fletch is prevailing, or you, Fletch and yourself are onto something that this could well be a situation where Ukraine has drawn these Russian units into a killing ground. It reminds me of in Band of Brothers, the Bastogne episodes, where you had artillery air bursting in the trees, and it must have been horrific to uh, withstand those barrages. And now Ukraine have the DPICM shells that they could be firing into those trees. And I don't, I don't believe that would be too pleasant to be on the receiving end of that. Um, so what do you think? Um, is, that, is it likely that they've drawn them in just to, to kill a lot of troops, like the, as you say, like they were doing in Bakhmut? I, I, I think that's probably why the Russians were permitted to advance that, that far. Uh, that it just wasn't the worst place that they could, you know, could bust a move. Uh, it, it's also not surprising that that's where they sort of came to rest. Uh, meaning that that's where the zero line wound up. But uh, imagine how difficult Imagine what tonight's going to be like uh, for the Russian soldiers, right? They had to dig in, and uh, now they are peering out into the inky black darkness. It's going to be raining in Ukraine until uh, the middle of the weekend. Um, you know, you, you always hear me talking about the dark and stormy night. There is no better night to be a special operations guy than a dark and rainy, windy, stormy night. Because the ground is soft, the, the leaves don't crinkle, the trees are making noise, uh, people can't see. Uh, also, people get miserable in the middle of the night. They don't want to stand guard anymore. They tend to pull their ponchos over their heads. They can't see, they can't hear, and uh, you sneak up on them. And that's what's going on tonight. So I promise you there are going to be less Russian soldiers in the woods tomorrow morning than there are right now. And the Ukrainians are not just going to target the, the zero line, right? They are going to infiltrate the line in a dozen places. And uh, starting at about 4 o'clock in the morning, those teams aren't going to go to ground. They are going to go into a layup position. They're going to camouflage themselves adequately. And uh, tomorrow, during daylight, they are going to conduct opportunistic attacks against vehicles, people. Uh, some of those units are not even going to make contact. They are simply going to call in artillery and lucrative targets that they see. 
so yeah, um, I don't know. I spent a lot of times fighting in forests and jungles in my life, and uh, it's uh, it it it's actually a very very favorable position for special operations forces to operate, and not just special operations forces. You're fighting in a forest. It goes down to the smallest tactical level, right? Squads and fire teams and task elements, little tiny units, and Ukraine excels at that kind of warfare. Uh, thanks, G-Man. Uh, to Oyvind, then to Furious George. Oyvind. Yeah, good morning from Norway, Jack. How are you? Hi, Oyvind. Good to hear you, brother. I'm sorry you have to stay up so late, but I'm glad you come on for us. I will not miss this show. Not for not for anything. Maybe if uh, Foo Fighters were playing in a <laughs> neighborhood, I would go to them. Okay. Any, any, any else, I wouldn't. Well, thank you. I'm uh, glad you're on. Uh, I read that uh, Ukrainian did some uh, rotation of uh, of their forces, and uh, that was part of the reason why the Russians uh, moved so quickly. Uh, did you have? Did you pick up something of that? I I I did read that, but I didn't. Um, you know, I didn't. I didn't give it a lot of 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 credence. Look, I'm, I'm not saying it 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 couldn't be true, but the other thing I thought was, you know, Ukraine understands the things that have to happen when you rotate troops out. Uh, you know, for example, when there's a seal element deployed somewhere and the new seals come in we we have you know we have a two-week period of overlap and that is so i can learn and everyone in my unit can learn as much as we can about the local conditions so i you know i i don't know uh i just thought ukraine wouldn't just you know okay the relief's here you take it over we're going back but i don't know but i read that as well even Okay, and if if you were in Salusni's uh, position, which front would you put most veterans from the 2014 uh, time period, or where do you put their rookies? Well, I, I would I would try to keep. Uh, I would always try to keep a nucleus of really experienced guys in in every unit um and i would try to get the bring the new guys in and uh you know surround them as much as i could with uh with experienced troops you know and and here's another thing that operates against the russians and they have done this in their army since the times of the czar. Uh, the new people, the replacements who come into a unit, are preyed upon by the existing soldiers, right? You show up with a sea bag from basic training in the Russian forces, and the first thing that happens, and has happened for decades, is you get beaten up, you might get raped, but they're going to take all of your gear. And there is this schism in their unit, right? It's always the old guys against the new guys. So naturally, unit cohesion is zero. Uh, and, you know, those circumstances don't exist in the Ukrainian forces. 
sure, you know, you're still a new guy. Absolutely. But you don't get preyed upon, beaten up, extorted, and you don't get your gear stolen. And, you know, again, it's the Canadian military that came in there about six or seven years ago and started changing the ethos of the of the Ukrainian armed forces, who unfortunately had some of this post-Soviet Russian baggage in their, you know, the ethos of, of their armed forces. And they transitioned from, you know, uh, soldier as cannon fodder to citizen soldier, uh, the concept that exists through all Western armies, you know, Norwegian, German, French, British, certainly American. Uh, so I think, I think that's what's going on too. Okay. Thank you very much. Well, I stepped on. Uh, Ivan, thank you for coming up, brother. I always appreciate that because I know you're up late and <laughs> I think that's wonderful uh, that you join I, us. I will not miss this show. This, this is so exciting. It's so exciting. <laughs> I wouldn't say exciting, but I thank you for coming up. Thank you, Chuck. Thank you, Oyvind. Let's go to Furious George. Uh, he is not a children's book. Uh, then to Abdullah. That's a great intro, Alan. Thank you very much. How's everyone doing today? Uh, Chuck, great to hear from you. You know, Chuck, you you you, you, you you gave me some flashbacks with some of the things you were talking about. You know, you were talking about... Um, soldiers knowing their weapon like their 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 battle rifle and and you're talking about you know the russians that probably haven't even shot fired like 10 15 shots with the damn thing they have no idea you know how to maintain the rifle it's pretty much spray and pray as we say there's no aimed uh sustained fire um you know that's not how the, the that's that's just cannon fodder. Uh, that's not training. I remember, uh, you know, uh, after I left Germany, we're, we're at Bragg. You know, we spent a, my unit spent a lot of time on on the range uh, for <clears throat> for for specific reasons. But uh, you know, we we taught the sight picture right. Make sure that you know when you're holding that M16 up, always keep your eye the same distance from that rear eyepiece. Changing your sight picture, you know, can throw you off. It improves you. Like you, you're talking about breathing. Remember, you know, you do this rapid fire drill, and you and you became second, like, like second nature to 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 pull the trigger every time you exhaled. Right when you're doing aim shots, you know, three hundred, uh, two hundred and fifty, three hundred meter shots. Right, and these are and for. For some of the young youngsters on here, this is me and uh, Chuck, uh, us old guys on iron sights, right? We didn't have the optics, so you know you're you're doing uh, three hundred yard, three hundred meter shots, uh, you know, so, and making sure you hit the target every time. It's breathing control, this and that. And then you mentioned something else: the rain. You know, like I, I know. Yeah, you you SOF guys, uh, you love you love those storms because you know, and people can test it out. Go out in the rain. Uh, it's hard if someone's across the street and you're just talking like in a normal voice. It's hard to hear them. 
you know, sound travels a lot less when it's raining. And that's great when you're trying to infiltrate, like Chuck said, you know, an enemy position or remove, you know, a, a certain element uh, of the enemy. You know, you can creep up on them easier. Um, you know, these are the things that Ukrainian SOF has been trained. And this is what's, you know, and we're hearing that they're that they've changed some of their tactics from the beginning. You know, they're using these small teams to infiltrate into areas where the where the Russians are, take out their for their, their forward units, and then allow the sappers to quietly go in there at night and do their work. You know, so then the next morning or early, right before right before dawn, you know, those vehicles can advance into that breach. I mean, this war is fluid, as Chuck will tell you, and these adaptions are going to happen, and they're going to further adapt. But adapting to what's in front of you, that is how you, that's how you distinguish a professional army, to be able to do that on the fly. And it's, you know, it. It comes down to that 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 small unit cohesion, uh, uh, you know. In and you you talked about your time on the range, uh, you know. That's something a soldier never regrets. You know, you you never go into combat thinking I spent too much time on the range. Uh, and and <laughs> do you right? You never you never do. No, it's. I remember there was there was like you know I've met other guys that have spent you know you know did their turn tour in the army and said you know we didn't get we didn't get to the range uh, uh, enough. Uh, like I said, my unit we used to go like on the regular. Like we were there multiple times a month, and we would be there for like a uh, a couple of days, and you know, and there was things that we did. Remember, like. You know, always, always people say, well, the range, you know, the, the target never shoots back at you. Right. So what we did was we would actually have our guys, you know, uh, do physical exercise to get their heart rate up. Chuck, you know, guys doing uh, doing jumping jacks and then knocking out push ups to get their heart rate up, you know, because that's that's the difference in, in combat. Your heart's racing. Right. It just happens to, to be that way and to learn how to control that and to be able to get that, uh, like you said, that uh, that shot off and, you know, squeezing the trigger and getting that that t- that takes training. That doesn't happen overnight, you know, and a lot of these even some of these Ukrainian units. Right. They're going to get better as time goes on. They're going to learn, you know, the 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 strong points of the guy next to them you know, and, and the gal next to them. So that unit cohesion is going to build moving forward. You know, it built a little bit during training, right? That's where it starts, but it continues, especially in the battle space. Funny, funny you mentioned that, George, because uh, we used to do our uh, range qualifications immediately after the battle fitness test. Yeah, it's it's it was one of the ways because look, if if I'm sitting on a range, right, and, and and you know, 
And most most soldiers, you, you don't realize this, but most soldiers after they've been in the army for, for uh, you know, for, for a year or whatever, your resting heart rate is like below 60. You know, you got guys that are, whose heart's beating like, you know, 50 to 60 beats a minute, if that, you know, is it, because that's how good in, in shape they are. So. You know, that's not going to be your heartbeat uh, that you're not. That's not going to be your heart rate when you're engaged in combat. I guarantee you that that uh, that heart's going to be going at 120 beats a minute. And uh, you need to be able to adjust for that or learn to co- learn to, to compensate for that. You know, and we, uh, we were the fittest alcoholics on the planet. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and crazy, like. Like you'd go and and aside here, and I know Chuck, I know Chuck, I know Chuck partook in it too. You'd go and drinking all night, and then the next day you're there six o'clock in the morning, running in a two three mile run, and you'd be like, "Now Jesus, two three yeah, miles standard run. standard SOP. First guy that puked on the run bought the drinks for the next night. Exactly. Well, I I cannot imagine uh, controlling my. My breathing, especially uh, in the midst of battle or or controlling my heartbeat, uh, but I do understand how important it is. Uh, 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 furious, we're we're just going to move to Abdullah, uh, and then we're going to move down to Bakhmut. Abdullah. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks, Alan. Good morning, Chuck. H- hello, Thanks Abdullah. So hello. Thank you. Hello, hello there. Thank you so much for your time. Just wanted to ask you real quick. I know we need to go get back to the front line, but as you know, uh, Teflon uh, Sergei Shoju is in North Korea. So I was just wondering, he became the first Russian defense minister to visit North Korea since Soviet times. So I was just wondering, what do you think they need from the uh, from the Korea, North Koreans? And can this be used? Can the Chinese use this as a conduit? To pass on uh, weapons uh, to China through through North Korea. Yeah, they they, they definitely could. I think that uh, uh, Alan and I, uh, before the show, were exchanging information. The Chinese are apparently going to be providing night vision and thermal uh, systems to Russia. Uh, I, I think it's it's sort of telling. Uh, where it is that Shoigu uh, can go. And uh, going to North Korea for anything, uh, you got to be pretty hard up. Uh, there, there's a lot of stuff that North Korea would like from Russia. Uh, you know, technology, uh, <laughs> aircraft, all, all sorts of things. North, <clears throat> North Korea needs everything. But about the only thing that North Korea, I think, has to give away is likely artillery ammunition. And uh, North Korea operates mostly uh, Soviet legacy gear. And I think that the one thing that North Korea could offer is uh, 152 millimeter artillery ammunition, some larger uh, ammunition as well. Uh, you know, North Korea is a uh, uh, is you know their their tactics, their equipment uh, is Soviet. Um, so there's interoperability between these between these uh, these forces. Uh, 
but I don't think that uh, North Korea, well, I, I will take that back. North Korea is developing uh, some cruise missile uh, technology. They, they've got some emerging weapon systems technologies. And I think what Shoigu is probably looking for, he's looking for artillery, a source of artillery ammunition. And one thing that Russia can offer to North Korea is capital, money. And that money could go to expanding uh, some of the R&D and some of the production uh, that they have going right now uh, to produce some cruise missile technology. They've got some other longer precision uh, strike products that they're developing. And one thing that North Korea could uh, help Russia with is sanction busting. Because the North Korean intelligence apparatus is uh, extremely good. And uh, they, of course, uh, they're also on the uh, axis of evil list. So their own procurement for their weapons program, of course, it's extremely convoluted, front companies, et cetera, et cetera. I won't bore you. You can imagine what it is they have to do to get the computer chips and optics and things that they need. And that's something that Choigu can offer them. Uh, technology and money and uh, expand your operation and help us out. So I think that's, that's likely what's, what's going on. Uh, thanks, Abdullah. Uh, what Shoigu was looking for uh, from North Korea is everything China can ship uh, via North Korea. Uh, and I think this is a, a relatively dangerous uh, escalation that Russia has invited China to participate in. But as Chuck says, we need to see how it develops. Uh, Angry Moose, go ahead. I, I was just going to circle back to the uh, the, the Furious Georgia discussion on uh, and Chuck's discussion on the quality of a soldier. And the, these things that are coming out of Russia, they're not soldiers. Soldier connotates uh, a certain level of training, which these people do not have. So I don't know what they are. They're they're partially civilian combatants. I don't know. There, there's probably a technical term somewhere in the dictionary for them, but they're definitely not soldiers. Uh, and you know, they, George kind of touched on it a little bit there, but there's there's a lot of nuances an experienced soldier uh, picks up over time, and uh, stuff like recognizing parallax in your optics. Uh, you know, stuff like that. And uh, when George was talking about, uh, uh, you know, controlling your breathing, if you're really exerting, uh, like if you're out there doing fibula, uh, so that's fighting in built up areas, uh, your your heart rate never goes down, your breathing never goes down. Uh, there Now you get some units that uh, they go through a built up area like a ballet. Uh, and, you know, it's impressive. Uh, I, I was never that, uh, that, um, elegant with it uh i i was uh, kind of a application of force was my was my best best method of surviving however um you know it's knowing how to compensate uh, when your body is exerting so you know how knowing because your sight picture is going to change and you need to know how to compensate that. So as you're breathing really heavy, the rifle, the barrel, the rifle is going up and down a lot more than it, it than it 
is when you're at rest. And you need to know how to compensate that. An experienced soldier, we practice that. Like like George was saying, we'll, we'll sit there and we'll do push-ups and jumping jacks and just run on the spot to get our heart rate and our breathing, mostly our breathing up because uh, the, the the breathing is, is, is uh, when your lungs are inflating and uh, deflating, it causes the, the, the most motion in the body. The, the heart rate's annoying and it's, uh, it takes a little bit of more nuance to deal with. But, uh, you know, the whole slowly squeezing the trigger and, you know, being surprised by it, then holding the trigger and letting it go slowly and you hear the sear re-engage, you know, that's that that's old soldier stuff. Yeah, and there, there, there really is this sort of Zen to it and. You know, folks, if you're listening and you go to yoga and, uh, you know, you have that moment in Half Lotus and your instructor is telling you to, you know, quiet your quiet your inner voices and relax a little bit, that's, that's part of it. If you're in a forward reconnaissance position, you just sort of go to this Zen place and you, you open yourself up to the, all the all the sounds and smells uh, of, of the forest. I know this sounds a little new agey, but it is absolutely true. And I know that there are a bunch of old soldiers sitting here who can tell you, I can remember on, on more, more than a handful of occasions, I would be sitting watching on ambush and you get so zenned into the forest that, get a little bird that would land on a twig in front of me and just, you know, I mean, close enough that I could breathe and make its feathers move. That just doesn't even know I'm there. You know, a little Robin scratching his ears. Uh, that's, that's what it takes. And, and, and you can actually learn it, right? You, you, you can learn to do that. And learn to lower your heart rate. And uh, again, those are, look, if they could teach it to me, they could teach it to anybody. And those, those, are, the, those are the skills that are going to keep you alive uh, on the battlefield. And then, look, there are some Russian soldiers who have been in this war now. You know, they have been here since day one of the special military operation. And if you're still alive and you're one of those Russian soldiers, you have adapted, right? And you you have these these skills. Now, I remember looking at this curve somewhere in some study I read when I was a junior officer showing when it is in a soldier's career in combat that he's going to get killed. And not surprisingly, early in your combat career, uh, it's it's a good place to get killed because you don't have those skills yet. And this paper I read even had it broken out by rank. Who gets killed the most, the quickest? And uh, Moose, I know you can tell me who's likely, who's most likely to die in the first thirty days of their combat experience. He I, I kind of think it's a private, isn't it, Moose? Moose has left. Oh, sorry, I'm only mouthful. I think it's a it's a second lieutenant is because he is going to press it. He's going to try to lead from the front, which is good, admirable. 
but he doesn't yet know how to develop a situation tactically. And he's going to, he's going to push it too hard. So there's this, or use his compass. <laughs> Boy, you know what though, in my business, you better, you know, if you didn't, if you didn't demonstrate exceptional land navigation skills early and often, you weren't going to be here very long. So, and I'm sorry we caught you eating. I know that's a bad thing when you're sitting there. You're like, okay, everyone else is talking. I'm going to get something to eat. You know, actually, Chuck, uh, there's an episode in, in Band of Brothers where uh, I think it's a second lieutenant uh, who's a graduate of West Point uh, is fresh on the front, uh, doesn't know how to get the trust of, of, uh, uh, of his men. Uh, volunteers insists that he wants to go on a mission, uh, and it is the uh, the seasoned uh, captain uh, who says no. Uh, so, uh, so I get that. Uh, it's the second lieutenant. Uh, I get that. Uh, uh, so, it, we're going to take a last look at at Kremina. Uh, Chuck. I have one question for you, uh, but also. One observation, uh, I would rather be a member of the Ukrainian uh, armed forces knowing that uh, I will be rotated out uh, of the zero line and fresh forces uh, will come in uh, to relieve me. This isn't happening anywhere on the zero line with Russian forces. So whether it's in Kremlin or Bakhmut, uh, in uh, Donetsk or Zaporizhia, uh, Russian soldiers aren't getting rotated out uh, they are they're fighting uh, even in, in Kremlin where they uh, couldn't decide what they were going to do they've been there uh, waiting that is as as uh, a, a kind of um, oh it's a it's a kind of intensity you know waiting to know what you're going to do what are the orders going to be in the morning etc uh, so it's an uncertainty that you have, uh, but uh, so in other words, up in Kremlin, Russian forces have been there for months and months and months. Uh, Ukrainian forces uh, rotated out and in, uh, but in Kremlin, Chuck, is this a place where you think Ukraine will have to reinforce in order to hold? And would that be a mistake? You know, I, I, I don't know that they're going to have to put in a lot more people uh, than they have because there's, there's you know, the, there's another thing that, that is going on it, is that as the Russians go west out of Kremena, the com- countryside opens up. And uh, I don't think, you know, in order to... to take that kind of terrain, Russia's going to have to put together multiples of, of brigade task groups. So we're talking, you know, thousands of men, and that can easily get to tens of thousands of men. Uh, you know, large-scale combined arms maneuver warfare. And I'm not sure that Russia... Uh, that the Russian commanders have that kind of faith in their guys anymore. Uh, 
you know, I always bring up Vuladar because, you know, the, the press doesn't. But that sent a huge ripple through the Russian armed forces. Those were two brigades, three brigades of naval infantry, you know, Marines, right? And Marines all over the world have won a well-earned reputation as really good troops. And the Russian Marines, they had everything they needed to take Vuladar, which was only three or four kilometers away. They, they couldn't take it. And I think every Russian commander took a lesson from that. And, and that is, you know, we couldn't do it. We couldn't do it. But there was another lesson there in Vuladar. And that was the Russians saying, thank God the Ukrainians did not follow up on our defeat. So I, I think, you know, I, I think this lunge through the forest here in Kremena was the Russians finally trying something new. They tried that seven-prong offensive. It didn't work. And six of those prongs were over open country. And those were defeated, as they have been inevitably, you know, places like Nevsky and, and Yampoville and all of these places that the Russians have just tried and tried to get to. In many cases, for example, Nevsky, at least 15 or 20 times, they actually got to Nevsky. But the guys who got there never made it back to the zero line, right? So they failed and failed and failed. I think this three-pronged lunge through the, uh, uh, the forest area here, uh, you know, the Russians think, okay, we got it. Uh, you know, we've advanced six kilometers. But on sober reflection, and after nights like tonight, and I'm not kidding you, there are going to be less Russians in that forest tomorrow morning than there were when the sun went down. Ditto tomorrow night and the night after. Uh, I don't know. Alan, I mean, I don't want to underestimate the enemy at all, but I don't know that Russian command itself thinks they're up for large-scale maneuver warfare. And here's one more thing. That's the only thing that's going to win this war for Russia, right? If they want to win this and subdue Ukraine, they need they need large-scale combined arms maneuver warfare elements converging 20, 30, 40 miles in, in the Ukrainian rear. I mean, that's a pipe dream, right? General Zaluzny, of course, has to be on guard for that. He has to make sure that doesn't happen to him. But on the other side of the equation, I don't think Shoigu's got a chance in hell of making that happen anywhere in Ukraine. So we're at that point, folks, right now. 1969, Vietnam. The U.S. hasn't lost the war yet, but they can't win it anymore either. So, you know, I don't know. That's, that's, that's my take. Uh, I sincerely hope, folks, the Russians don't prove me wrong. But uh, I think that's where the, the ball sits right now. Uh, Chuck, we're going to move on to Bakhmut. Uh, it is the third tweet uh, in the nest. Uh, and uh, here is an area where Ukraine uh, it is 
is advancing, having a great deal of success, uh, and uh, preparing for, well, preparing maybe for uh, something uh, really, uh, really big, and certainly a, a complete propaganda defeat of Putin. Yeah, this is, uh, it, it, it's been interesting. Uh, it was an interesting day here. Uh, let, let's go south of Bakhmut, uh, here to the sort of place in the battlefield between uh, Klishvika uh, and uh, Andrivivka and uh, Kurdimavinka. Uh, this is, uh, you know, of course, south of Bakhmut, the rail line, of course, goes south. It makes that big S-curve by Klishvika. Uh, the TO-513 also heads south. If you look, you can see that the Russians actually staged an attack that, uh, you know, that actually penetrated maybe four kilometers. Uh, they, they pushed four kilometers to the west. You can see those little arrows, the way the, the, red, the red arrows. Uh, they got there. Uh, they were probably aiming for the H-32 highway or planning to cross the canal. At any, at any case, cutting the H-32 highway was their fondest hope and dream. Uh, but they got pushed back. And again, the, you know, attacking over open terrain. Uh, so a, a company sized element of, uh, Russian paratroopers with infantry fighting vehicles and some armor set out. And, and when you look at those contact points, folks, and they're away from the zero line, you know, look at the map and ask yourself these questions. How did the Russians get so far? Uh, you have to think at a certain point, you'll draw this conclusion well, they were allowed to get that far, right? Ukraine obviously let these guys pass because look at it this way. They got that far. They burned up half their ammunition and half their gas. Then they start getting hit and they have to pull back. You can see where that airstrike is. Uh, position definite. That's exactly where the airstrike was Was delivered that tells me in map analysis that the russians were attempting to break contact and had to call in an airstrike basically get these ukrainians off my ass okay they wound up getting driven all the way back to the zero line back into klishvika uh the russians had to cross that high ground it looks like a little green blob there, if you zoom right in in Klishvika, you could see where the arrow returns to the to the railway line. That meant they were plunging down that hill, which the Ukrainians, you know, have fought very hard to gain in the last couple of days. So these guys retreated right right into a place that the Ukrainians wanted them. I don't think very many uh, of the Russian attackers who reached up. Uh, to the forest line in the canal heading towards the H-32, I don't think many of them made it back to Klishvika. Uh, you can see I'm, I've, I've just experimented with a new sort of map icon. 
you can see the red, uh, the, the combat icons that are red. These are sort of Russian, uh, you know, Russian, Russian uh, initiated battles. The blue ones are, are Ukrainian initiated battles. So, you know, Russia isn't, they aren't going very many places. And, and you know, we, we talked about the training of soldiers and the, the ethos of command and morale within the unit. And I, I, I talk about this a lot. If you keep leading your soldiers into defeat, if you keep leading them on failed operations, if you keep doing things like this, getting five or six kilometers and then getting ambushed. Those Russian soldiers are, 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 they're having, they're, they're, what's being inculcated in them is, is contempt for the officers that lead them, contempt for the plans that are put together and increasing respect and even fear of the Ukrainian adversary. Because I, I promise you that there were enough old soldiers in this, in this, sortie out of, uh, you know, that, that round trip back to Klishvika today, that when they got one kilometer from the zero line and then two and then three, some of those old soldiers were thinking, we're, we're getting mud sucked here. We have this expression in the seals, if your attack is succeeding spectacularly, it's probably an ambush. And that's just what happened here. Uh, I've got some frontline sources who are reporting that uh, Ukraine is actually coming across the rail line in the vicinity of Klishvika. I had some sources report today that the Russians had withdrawn from Andrevika. I, I couldn't confirm that, but I had two sources telling me that. Uh, the thing to look for is when the Ukrainians and when, I don't think it's if, but when, they get to the T0513 highway, that's, that's really going to be an important, uh, an important achievement. I think the most important uh, second-order effect that that will have is that the Russians are going to pour more forces into backload, which is, you know, uh, ironically what I think Ukraine wants. They want to fix, uh, they want, they want Russia to continue to make Bakhmut the center of gravity of the Eastern theater. And the reason they're doing that folks is Ukraine has nothing to lose around Bakhmut, you know, and Whenever, when anyone tells you what's going on in Bakhmut, you pick up the BBC and you read about Bakhmut. I want you to cross that, cross out Bakhmut, and you just think Chasiv Yar, because as long as Ukraine holds Chasiv Yar, Bakhmut is absolutely irrelevant. And everything we said before about Bakhmut, it it still holds in terms of its irrelevancy. The M03 highway would be great. But the Russians, if they go, if they concentrate on the M03 highway, they're separating from the H32 and, and ditto. They, they're not, this is not a place where avenues of advancement for the Russians would be mutually supporting. 
And therefore, it, it, you know, I couldn't think of a more inane and uh, irrelevant place for Russia to concentrate its, its objectives on. But here they did. I, I don't know at what level in the Russian command center they decided that this would be a good idea. I, I, I honestly don't, and I still can't figure it out. But that's... It, it, you know, I was just going to say, Chuck, General uh, Robert E. Lee, uh, who knew how to retreat, and he really did, uh, I mean, he, he wouldn't be staying here. He wouldn't be calling up uh, reserves and pouring in uh, any reinforcements into Bakhmut as, as the Russians are. But I hope you're right about that. I really do hope that the Russians continue to fight for Bakhmut. There's nothing left of it. You don't see the Ukrainian forces uh, fighting through the center of Bakhmut. Uh, I don't think that, uh, that they would ever do it. Uh, but it, it, it makes no sense. So as, as you and John Spencer always say, uh, don't interrupt your enemy uh, when... He's making a mistake. Yeah, and it's you know there there's a tempo uh, in in war, right? You know, you call something a war, and uh, we had a we had a uh, contributor on the other night and w- was was saying the average length of one of these wars, a regional war, is you know two or three years, which is right, and and that's shown throughout history. And for example, you can just you can just take an example from the American Civil War, uh, with the exact exception of the you know the siege of Petersburg. That just the American Civil War just wasn't fought like that. There were there were battles over cities, and there were maneuvering armies, and. You know why is the American Civil War relevant? Well, it was the it was the first modern war, and war really hasn't changed very much. Tactics and technology, and and of course, all of that's important. But in terms of combined arms maneuver warfare, and strings of battles making up campaigns, it, it's so different from what the Russians are doing here, and. You know, it, it's important to like keep remembering and 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 keep framing these facts as you see them from the battlefield. They scream that Russia has no plan to win this war, right? Winning Bakhmut is not going to win this war. Winning Chasivyar wouldn't even win this war. So there's something. There's this major disconnect in Moscow, folks. You know, we know that Russian commanders are raised and taught and imbibe this philosophy that their troops are consumables. They don't measure success or failure by how many tens of thousands of soldiers that a Russian general loses. He'll just get a medal for it. An American general would probably get fired if he lost 5,000 guys. And certainly if he lost... (laughs) 45,000 guys taking in a relevant city that he's still fighting for. What is it, Alan? A, a, a year, 500 days later? But, you know, the Russians don't have a plan, folks. 
The plan should be stage a major breakout centered on Solidar, cross the M03 highway and drive towards uh, Duravika and thrust out of the south and take Constanvika and converge to the west of Chasivyar. That's a plan. That's a plan. And there are tens of thousands of Russian soldiers around Bakhmut. Why don't they do it? Because they can't. They can't. Which, which, and, and all of all of our Russian uh, commanders and listeners uh, tonight are scratching their heads, and and dropping their 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 heads on the desk in front of them, saying, "Damn, we can't." <laughs> you know, Alan, I I don't want to underestimate the enemy. I, I don't, but but I'm pointing out something that is sort of obvious. It. If you're a you're a Western trained general officer, and I hate to say it, even cadet, you know, what's the goal of this war? If if you if you have forty thousand lives to squander, why didn't you advance the ball, right? Why why are you still stuck here? But but. You know, I, I commend the Ukrainians, but they're, what they're doing, though, is they're taking advantage of uh, a set of circumstances. You know, Putin, military genius, found a name of a Ukrainian city he could pronounce, Bakhmut. He stuck his greasy booger stained finger on the map and said, take this. And nobody could say to him, uh, boss, it's. That, that place is irrelevant. See how these two roads, do you see how they meet at 90 degrees? If we try to advance out of here, they won't be mutually. Nobody can say that to him. How can a head of state possibly win a war, uh, you know, without any sort of grounding in military science? But again, even that's okay, right? Abraham Lincoln didn't know he he was only compelled to learn because he couldn't find a union general to to you know to grapple with the enemy so he had to teach himself but believe me that sort of self-enlightenment that's beneath vladimir putin He's he's not gonna he's not gonna say to his his staff members somebody get me a copy of tacitus i want to read that Someone get me a copy of Xenophon. I want to read that. How about getting me a copy of Mahan Sea Power? I'll read that too. He won't do that. He's not going to do that. That's one of the reasons why they can't win the war. The other thing, he can look out at all the generals and marshals and colonel generals and everyone he has, and he's looking at a bunch of crooks. And he's responsible for it. He's the guy. 25 years, he raised up a generation of officers who are sycophantic, they are corrupt, they are inept, they are cowardly, they are brutal, they are everything except good leaders and good officers. And that's not his problem, folks. That's his legacy. That's his legacy. 
And if you've got generals like that, you can't win a war. You just can't do it. Uh, and when Chuck speaks about a string of battles uh, that make up a campaign, uh, when we get uh, uh, to the west here, uh, into western Donetsk Oblast, uh, eastern Zaporizhia uh, Oblast, uh, we are going to see a string of battles developing that will make this uh, counteroffensive campaign that Ukraine has been preparing. Uh, but to stay in Bakhmut for a moment, uh, we will go to uh, to G-Man, then to Fletch. G-Man. Uh, G-Man, are you with us? Yeah, yeah. Um, thanks again. Um, Chuck, go to ask the same question as I asked the other night. Um, the, uh, the little river is flowing south between Rose Dolovica and Vesele. Um, have the Ukrainians made any progress there? Yeah, you know, I said on Tuesday I was going to correct the map, and I should. I should at least be putting some blue stripes up there. Uh, the Ukrainians have actually, you can see the road uh, from Vesele. Actually, that's a power line. Uh, going from Vesele uh, to Yakov, Yakovlivka, they've actually uh, penetrated maybe one or two kilometers that way. They are also a little closer to Solidar. Uh, you can see that water course uh, going down there on the western side of that water course, uh, south of uh, Razalivka. They've actually taken a little bite out of there as well. And there was also uh, this week, I guess that was 48 hours ago, uh, Ukraine was able to hit a military command center in, uh, in Solodar. So they are still, they're still pressing uh, in that direction. And thanks for reminding me, I will fix that tomorrow. I'm going to make a little note right now. Thank you. Uh, thanks, G-Man. Uh, thanks to you. Uh, Chuck's maps uh, get better and better. Uh, Thank you, uh, brother. Fletch. <laughs> Fletch, go ahead. Yeah, Chuck. Um, I'm going to just say some things now that are going to really support all your hypothesis. Because um, I've been listening to interviews, as you know, and I've been picking up on, on some other information as well. Now, you've always said that the main aim is to destroy the Russian army. Well, there's a few things being released this week um, that, that both General Seleucine has already said his main aim is not to gain territory as much now, but to destroy as much equipment and, and troops as possible. Um, and all along the battlefront, um, that's occurring. Now, now in Bakbut, um we we have we had some figures uh, by the general staff released on 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 comparable losses. Um, now I think it's for Bakhmut it's at least five and a half to one, and in Saporizhia area it's eight to one, um, which are absolutely outstanding figures considering Ukraine is on the offensive in these areas. Um, they must be even greater. On, on the Kupiansk-Savatobe line 
um, because they're on the, the, the defensive mainly there. Now, that in itself, while General Sertsky also made some other comments about um, while Bakhmut as a city, which you keep on repeating, has no strategic significance, the consequences of the battles that are going on there do have strategic influence on a wider strategic and operational level in so much as political capital invested in Bakhmut, the psychological effect of what's going on with the ground the Russians are losing, that is having a wider effect on, on, on the whole battlefield. Because I'm sure you've picked up on some of the, the Russian panic that's going on. Because in Klisvika itself, um, and, and I'm not taking what Russians say as fact, but if two or three Russians are saying it and it's negative, then it, it, you know you can sort of draw some form of conclusions from that. That in Klisvika, they said they never, when they rotated or put some new reserves in, they didn't even dig in. Yeah, they didn't even dig in to protect their own lives. And that, that sums up what you've always said throughout all the time I've listened to you, this morale basis. But they just didn't give a shit whether they lived or died. That's how the, the attitude was. And also another psychological effect that General Sersky also said on, and you've also mentioned this continually, is that at the battalion and at the squad and at the company level, our successes are down to independent decision-making in real time. Now, that is the difference between, as you know, quick thinking, Chuck, on any battlefield is an essential. But when you're having commanders making quick thinking decisions, perhaps you can see why these advances have been occurring, because they capitalised, because they know what's going on locally. And just a last thing as well, I believe Azov was involved in the southern area of the back fight. Um, there was two pontoon bridges thrown up about a week ago, which the Russians didn't discover until a, a week later. I think I think the Azov was covering the rear, so they may have encountered some of the VDV advances going uh, going um, towards Ivyansky, um, and also the 24th and 28th. So that's really just a comment that all you're saying about the Bakhmut area has just been supported by what the general staff say. So you're either sitting in on their on their comms or you know a lot, Chuck. <laughs> it might just be that, uh, you know, I got lucky. So, but, uh, I, you know, that, that's one of the things that it's, it, 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 it's so wonderful to be on this show. And it's it is so wonderful to listen to so many informed people, uh, you know. And and we're we're all trying to trying to take the available information, which you know is often from official sources, is often 180 degrees out. Uh, we've got the 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 problem with. Uh, Russian mill bloggers who will exaggerate their uh, uh, their achievements, and sometimes they wring their hands uh, too much. Sometimes they don't wring their hands enough. Uh, unfortunately, sometimes Ukraine does not uh, announce their victories enough. 
we can understand if they downplay their defeats, uh, you know, you don't want to give a- adequate battle, battle damage assessments to the enemy. But, uh, you know, the, the, the goal, I think, of, of bullet points, I hope, is to, to get everyone who listens, just, just make it so you can look at the, the facts as, you know, I don't want to say facts. You can look at the information that's presented by Western media and you can, you know, I encourage you, read the translations of the Russian mill bloggers, uh, read everybody's information. But hopefully this will make you um, a more discerning uh, consumer of this information. And, uh, you know, we, we try to make the maps here a, as accurate as we can. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I just love it for people to, to look at the maps. For example, the round trip uh, uh, south of Bakhmut today that the Russian forces took. You know, you just put those points of contact down on the map. You look at where that airstrike occurred, when it occurred, look at the points of contact that happened around it. And, you know, there's then there's really only sort of one conclusion to draw there, right? You've got that Russian force that was heading towards the H-32 and for whatever reason, and let's say you don't know, it's like a three-variable algebra problem. Then for reason X... They had to call in an airstrike uh, behind them. Well, they wouldn't have called it in behind them. So, you know, they must have been trying to break contact. So those are the, you know, I I just want to lead everybody not to making the conclusions that I make, but, you know, look at the maps and look at the information and, of course, draw your own conclusions the more we go through this, the more absolutely you'll be able to do it. And there's get you just get so many people uh, on the show, speakers, you know, callers who call in. But you've got guys like, you know, General Ben Hodges and General Mick Ryan and, you know, Colonel John Spencer and, you know, all of the, the callers that you hear that have got such good information and good insights and that just helps. It, it helps us all, folks. It demystifies what's going on here and at, at the front. And it helps you put the Rus- Russian bluster and threats and their blood-curdling whatever. It helps you get it back in perspective. Yeah, and, and I just, I just want to point out uh, the reasons why Chuck's maps are really among the best you can look at. Uh, number one, uh, they're concentrated. Uh, they are focused. Uh, they are topographic. Uh, so you can see where the, the high ground is. Uh, you can see uh, where that Ukraine might be able to uh, concentrate artillery fire and create uh, a kill zone. Uh, and, and you can see uh, approximate uh, locations uh, of uh, airstrikes, artillery strikes, uh, uh, back and forth movement of, uh, of Ukrainian and Russian uh, forces, as well as uh, Ukrainian uh, ability to take out uh, control and command centers behind 
the line of contact and can take out uh, artillery emplacements. These are pretty much the best maps you can use every day. Alan, can I just add one point on that? Um, Very quickly. Um, And this is quite comical and paradoxical as well. I'm sure you picked this up, Chuck, as well. Uh, The Russians have more confidence in Ukraine's counteroffensive than Western media analysts. (laughs) That is well put. That is so well put. Well, you know, that that at least tells us, Fletch, uh, that the Russians are paying attention and they are mighty scared. And G-Man, you have a hot mic. It, so, uh, Chuck, I've seen those reports too. The, the, the Russians, the Russian mill bloggers and, and Russian uh, uh, individual soldiers uh, uh, really uh, are uh, uh, saying that the you know, they've mentioned cluster munitions. Cluster munitions have been used in Bakhmut. Uh, they've been used up in Kremlin. Uh, in fact, uh, I would uh, say that the Ukrainian logistics team uh, has delivered these cluster munitions uh, to every place on the front line where they're needed. And I really applaud them for that. Yeah, and it's, you know, uh, it. it they, it's a buzzword, right? And uh, bad, bad news writers can count on people reading uh, the article beneath a headline that's that says "cluster munitions" in it. But you know, they're they're not the you know as we know here, they're they're not always the right tool for the job. You know, they're they're like a they're it's a specialist munition for specialist applications, and. Uh, you know, all this rending of clothes and gnashing of teeth here in the West about should we or shouldn't we have provided cluster munitions to the Ukrainians? Let, let's all, let, let's not forget to, to frame that uh, navel-gazing uh, with this fact. The Russians have been using cluster munitions against Ukraine since 2014. And... Uh, Yes, there were cluster munitions used by uh, the Ukrainians, and they've been used in the battles for Klishvika. But yesterday, the Russians used cluster munitions against uh, a food distribution center in Ivanansky. And, you know, (laughs) that's just one of hundreds of times that the Russians have fired cluster munitions at civilian targets. You know, last April, it was the Kramatogorsk train station filled to capacity with refugees. The Russians carried out a cluster munition strike against the train against the train station exactly when the train pulled in. Not 15 minutes after, not, you know, not 20 minutes before, but right at the time where the train was uh, disgorging passengers and passengers were getting on. You know, so uh, to me, it isn't karma that Ukraine has cluster munitions now. What's important to me is that Ukraine has the ability to use one of the one of the militarily sound tools 
one of the weapon systems that is designed for certain applications, which would be assemblies of vehicles, uh, big concentrations of, of troops. Uh, there are other applications, but there, you know, there are some applications that, you know, you wouldn't want to use cluster munitions. It's not, it just, it just isn't appropriate. And, or the existing equivalent, a regular high, high explosive shell, high explosive fragmentation shell would pretty much do the same thing. And, you know, to, 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 un to understand, actually, people that have concerns about the inhumanity of cluster munitions, look, I, I, I understand those concerns. I really do. But speaking as a person who has seen close up what both munitions can do, I want to tell you in terms of their inhumanity, they're about the same, folks. It's about the same. 150 millimeters of high explosive fragmentation shell right you want mayhem that's mayhem cluster munitions yeah that's mayhem are they about equal pretty much but in terms of specific military applications right if if there are 20 vehicles parked in an area what's better to use a high explosive fragmentation round that would do it what does it better? The, the cluster munitions would, would reliably take out those vehicles. So again, it's just, uh, uh, it's a certain tool that is used in warfighting. And, and there's only one way, Chuck, uh, to transform any weapon designed for fighting a war uh, into a terror weapon, and that is by targeting civilians. That's what Russians do. Uh, they target civilians uh, with cluster munitions, with mortars, with missiles, uh, with everything they have. Uh, it is the target you choose uh, that uh, tells you whether or not uh, uh, an army uh, is a terror army or a real military. And the Russian army is a terror army. It's not just uh, when you see the targets they choose, civilians, schools, hospitals, markets, train stations, power infrastructure, uh, uh, but it, it's also the tactics they use as an occupying force. Uh, rape and violence, murder and torture, uh, torture chambers. We don't know uh, what we will see when Ukraine frees occupied territory. We don't know what we will see when Ukraine frees occupied territory uh, in Luhansk and Donetsk, uh, Zaporizhia and Kherson, uh, and for that matter in Crimea. But we need to prepare ourselves. And, and, and that, that's absolutely it, Alan. What, what is terroristic, right? It, it is deliberately targeting civilian targets. So yesterday's missile attack uh, that carried out by, by the Russians, uh, 39 cruise missiles, uh, uh, what was it, four or five Kinzhal uh, hypersonic uh, weapons, and uh, 
God, I can't remember what it was. Uh, it was 10 Shahid drones. I'm delighted to say uh, that this morning, the guys in charge of Russia's cruise missiles, good job, guys. I hope you get to go to Moscow to get what you deserve. They fired 39 cruise missiles, folks. Every single one of them were shot down by, by Ukraine air defense. And that's great. And the national engagement rate last night, interception rate, was about 77%. And that's, that's generally pretty good. But unfortunately, every single other precision weapon that was fired by the Russians, they're fired against a predetermined target. For example, if you let go a Shahid drone, it is heading for a GPS coordinate. And it isn't very sophisticated. It is simply going to head for the eight-digit grid coordinate that you provided for it. And even though the Ukrainians intercepted 77% of the missiles, that Shahid was headed for an apartment building, a hospital, a, a cluster of residential areas. You know, Shahids are this sort of bargain basement terror weapon, right? They're basically like the German V1, except they'll go exactly where you aim them. And again, at civilians. So let's go to the top end of the Russian technology, literally a hypersonic missile. One of the only ones that's operational in the world, fired by only one specialist sort of aircraft, the MiG-31 that, that Russia has. And again, the same thing. The guy who walks out to the runway to set the coordinates for that Kinzhal it's on an apartment building. That's what they're aiming at with these weapons. It, it, it boggles the mind. And just to put that in a, in a Western context here, everybody who's involved in that targeting of a hospital would be, would be subject to arrest in a Western army. The general who gave the order the, the colonel who accepted the order, the sergeant who walked out and actually set the dials, the pilot who, who pickled the target and pushed release, they'd all be criminals. But this is what goes on with Russia every single day. It, it's, it, it is what they do. If there was anything good to come out of last night, it's that Russia is running low on air-launched uh, cruise missiles. They're running low. And last night they launched 39 of them and not a single one got through to its target. And that's good. The reason these other ones are getting through is unfortunately Ukraine has to make these very tough decisions that they shouldn't have to make. And they don't have adequate air defense uh, assets. So they've got to move them around where they can protect the greatest number of their own civilians, right? This is why Putin targets civilians. He is taking the Ukrainian people hostage, right? And he knows that Ukraine's got patriot systems, and frankly, they could shoot down uh, Russian 
strike aircraft over the Black Sea. But Ukraine does not have the luxury of putting those Patriot batteries where they could do it. Those Patriot batteries have to protect big population centers. So as evil, vile, and despicable as it is to target hospitals, that's just one of the reasons why Russia does it. And the rot starts at the top, folks. If you've got a leader like that, it's it's not surprising that his that his soldiers have torture chambers everywhere, that they rape and pillage and murder with impunity. But look, as awful as that boogeyman is, folks, those rapists and burglars and looters, they're not soldiers. And they're not going to fight. And right now, tonight, in the forest south of Kremena, I can promise you the sword of karma is whistling through the air. Those guys can't fight. They can't. And we'll get down farther here on the east-west portion of the battlefield. And you see, look, the, these turkeys are coming home to roost, Alan. Yeah, we are about to, to move. Uh, to the main arena uh, of this uh, this counteroffensive that that Ukraine is undertaking successfully. Uh, but before we go there, I want to go to Bruce for his hand. Bruce, go ahead. Hey guys, I just wanted to address something that the gentleman, I think, two callers back said, where you, you know the Russian mill bloggers and the Russian troops. Uh, have a much different opinion of how this counteroffensive is going than the Western media. Uh, there's a journalist named Michael Weiss, and I tweeted it to you guys. He has an article on New Lines magazine where he basically compares the way the Western media is covering. Now, this happened two or three days ago, so it was before things got a little more kinetic. But he's comparing the way the Western media has been covering this battle of attrition for the last three weeks with what he's hearing on the front lines from, you know, Russian sources. But I thought the last paragraph was really interesting and and really gets into some of the conversations we've been having over weeks about Western journalists. And and I'll just leave you with this. He says, two-time Pulitzer Prize winning former war correspondent Thomas Ricks once said something to the effect of, covering combat can be dangerous, but it's relatively easy. You just need to write down what you hear and see. But covering a war accurately is far more difficult because it requires some understanding of strategy, logistics, morale, and other things that can't be observed so easily. And I I do wonder sometimes if that's what's going on uh, in newsrooms at the New York Times and and other places. And uh, I'm really excited to hear what you guys have to say about what's going on in the South. So thank you, as always. I, I was just going to say, Bruce, that it was a great tweet uh, you put out. You know, Western journalists, Western war reporters have focused on speed uh, of the Ukrainian attack. Uh, the exact wrong thing to focus on. Speed is sexy. Like, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, we went through it. La- we went through it last summer, the exact same time of year where it's like, You'd you'd hear the Ukrainians say, well, we took out this command post or we knocked out this bridge. And everybody was like, well, the Kherson offensive is is bogged down. And it's like, no, this is part of the offensive and it's called attrition. 
And sometimes I think the exact same thing is going on right now. I think they want to see like tanks rolling across the plains. And I think now they're finally beginning to see it. Bruce, I, I absolutely agree with you. And it's, it, it's one, it, it always surprises me when, when you get that kind of, of, of news coverage, because I, you know, honestly, if you, if you took two months and read, I don't know, I could give you a reading list of six books that, you know, you would expect a correspondent to be able to read in, in a matter of weeks. And it would sort of open their eyes to all of this stuff. And I don't, I don't mean that they have to technically master the, you know, the intricacies of, uh, of, of war, but knowing the difference between tactics and strategy, that would be interesting. Um, you know, and, and just like you said, un- understanding that preparing the battle space, that battles can actually be won before they're fought, right? Before they're fought. And you want to fight battles like that, right? You, and, and especially <laughs> if you are a commander who, who considers the lives of the men and the women that your nation has entrusted to you, that you consider them to be precious, and you don't want to squander those lives. So that's all, that always kind of amazes me, that there are certain writers and journalists who, who cover this with this sort of smug ignorance. And the more it goes on, I mean, to me, I, I think, you know, I've been reading certain reporters. Look, I've been reading your stuff for the last eight months. Why didn't you try to make yourself any smarter? about this whole thing. If you were writing about medicine or, or space or, or technology or information science, wouldn't you trouble yourself to just maybe learn a little bit about the subject matter? And I think in some cases there is this, uh, you know, there, there are many people uh, in, in places who have sort of looked down at the military uh, all their lives I don't get political on this show, but uh, one of the guys who did so, even though he was in the military, was John Kerry. You don't want to wind up having to join the military and go to Iraq. Well, I guess you don't, John, but not everybody gets to go to, you know, Yale. And there is this thing called the profession of arms, right? There have been some pretty bright people on this, on this program some very intelligent men and women, general officers and, and flag officers, and uh, who devoted their life to this. And, uh, you know, the military is one of the only places I know that you could start out as a high school dropout, and 30 years later, you could have been sitting in, in command of uh, strategic forces, right? You could be an admiral or a general. You could be a deputy chief of of uh, Sakur, right? I can't think of any other place in the world, any other sort of industry anywhere that will allow that path forward. And in the Western forces, it is a generally... It is a meritocracy. 
And that, that opportunity is absolutely opened to any man or woman who enters the service of, of the United States in the military. They will, they will hand you a college degree on your plate. They will give you the training. They will give you more responsibility than you could ever imagine, right? You could be a 19-year-old kid working on a carrier deck, and everything you do all day long is life or death. You know, $30 million airplane entrusted to you as the plane captain. You're, you're 19 years old. You're in charge of that thing. So... Anyway, it just it just amazes me sometimes. But everyone who's listening here, look, you're here, you're tuned in, you're you're bringing information and you're asking questions and you're the exact opposite of those those people who uh, are some of them are presuming to to tell you what's going on when uh, actually you're more into the information space than some of them appear like they'll ever care to be. So uh, as we move uh, west, uh, we are moving uh, into the, the center uh, of uh, the Ukrainian counteroffensive. Uh, we don't care about speed. Uh, we care about effect of the uh, counteroffensive here uh, in Orkiv. Uh, and what we see here uh, are Ukrainian forces uh, in Robotini, uh, and in Verbove, uh, striking south. And why is striking south so important? It's because the shores of the Sea of Azov eventually will be within reach. Chuck, what's happening uh, here on the Orkiv access? Well, access? I am happy to say, Alan, that uh, what is happening uh, today is what we said was going to happen on Tuesday. And that was continuing uh, Ukrainian pressure on uh, Rivadne, pushing uh, directly down the T-0408 uh, and attacking uh, Rivadne from the northeast. And folks, you will remember we talked about fixating uh, the Russians. We talked about the, the varying... Uh, lines of communication and supply for the Russians where the roads are. Uh, tomorrow, I'm delighted to say, I'll start using another map projection which will show farther to the south because Ukraine is making progress. And one of the things that we talked about on Tuesday was pressurizing Robotny, fixing the Russians there, getting them to put a lot of troops there, and we said it. Ukraine is going to begin attacking to the east, south of the H-03, and they're going to be hitting on Verbove, and that is what they're doing. Uh, I was extremely conservative in this map. It was the last one I was able to get up today. Uh, I've got some frontline sources saying that uh, Ukraine has actually pushed uh, probably off this map. They have gone to the south. So uh, it's it's been a good it's been a good day there. Uh, so as you pull back on this map, you see the whole uh, 
uh, Ukrainian salient here. They've taken a big bite out of the, the Russian uh, lines here. Uh, the Russians have tried over the last 10 days, they've tried on four occasions to attack simultaneously uh, from the east, from the south, and from the west to close this Ukrainian pocket. Uh, they failed every time. Uh, and again, looking at this map, that's the perfect example of Ukraine having interior lines, right? Put yourself, put your finger right in the middle of that, the, the white spot on this map. Those are interior lines. Uh, Ukraine controls the east-west highways. They control the north-south roads here. They can easily pivot anywhere to meet an oncoming Russian force. Put your finger on the red, red portion of the map. You can see if Russia wants to attack anywhere, they have to go all the way around the circle. Okay, so by attacking for the last, geez, 14 days, I think it's been, it's been that long uh, that it's taken Ukraine to push down the uh, TO408 during the course of the last two weeks, they've they've rebuffed at least three or four uh, Russian attempts to come out of Kopane, which is there to the western portion of the map, and cut the uh, the TO four zero eight. Ukraine has always kept them off that, but interestingly, they've always kept the pressure on Robotane. That that kept them. It, it kept the Russians fixated there. And because the Russians had exterior lines and because the Ukrainians were also pushing in three or four other locations, both to the west in Kamiansky and to the east of here in uh, Velika Novoslika, Russia could not concentrate in one place. They had to keep responding to all these different Ukrainian attacks. And eventually, that rope-a-dope, it opened up uh, the terrain to the east of Robotny. So, first thing I'm going to do tomorrow morning, a uh, brand new Orkiv map. And it appears to me the Ukrainians will be off this map and south of Rebove. Rebove, but we'll have to see. But it was a good day down here, Alan, in beautiful Orkiv. And, and this is at one place that where follow-up forces uh, are being poured in by Ukraine. And this is one place uh, where Ukraine is approaching uh, these, uh, these fortifications, the defensive lines that uh, Russia has had uh, so many, many, many months uh, to build and reinforce. Uh, what what kind of problem are these defensive lines going to present uh, to Ukraine? It's not only defensive trenches and fortifications, it's vast minefields. And when I say vast minefields, Russia has laid minefields uh, larger than six football fields. Yeah, there are, there are 10 million mines. Uh, and I think that I think easily there's double that many, 20 million mines. Uh, 
so, you know, people wonder what's taking so long. It is minimizing the threat of, of these mines. Uh, I have a, a projection of uh, approximate positions of, of Russian defensive uh, fortifications. I'm going to, I'm going to try to lay that into the, the coming maps here, at least occasionally once or twice a week, I'll put that overlay on here as well. Uh, Ukraine is getting, uh, getting quite close to Verbove. Uh, I'm looking at one of the, one of the renditions of the, of the defensive maps right now. Uh, the map I'm looking at right now, it would indicate to me that uh, Ukraine has probably already crossed at least one section of the major uh, defensive lines uh, in order to get to Verbove. They had to have done that. I, I've been hearing that for the last 24 hours or so from some of my sources that they've they've breached the v Russian defensive lines. I mean, that's a little a little hyperbolic. Uh, but they have penetrated some of them. Absolutely. Uh, I'm also looking at the, the way the Russians have laid, laid this out. And in some places it's been done ex exceedingly well. Uh, there are, there are several places in the, in the, in the defensive situation I'm looking at now where they, they've been competently laid out. There are other places, maybe not not so well. Uh, there are some places that are stronger, and at the strongest defensive positions will always uh, involve and take advantage of of uh, you know geographical features, right? You could dig a great series of trenches uh, somewhere, but if you fell back five kilometers and put that put those same entrenchments on, on a hilltop, you're doing better, right? So the Russians have done that in several places. Uh, that's showing me the military art of fortification, right? You need to take advantage of the, of the natural terrain. Uh, for example, there's no point uh, the Russians for don't dig trenches on the north side of an east-west water course, right? Put yourself on the other side of the river, make the enemy cross it under your guns. You know that makes the that makes your fortification ten times stronger to to do that. Uh, but the other the, the thing that that that's going on here, and even looking at these defensive positions, the the lines of communication and supply. Uh, there's a reason why Ukraine decided to push south of Orkiv. Uh, there's a there's a reason uh, why the next nearest uh, focus of Ukrainian operations is all the way over at Nova uh, uh, Vlika Nova Slika. Uh, you know, they're, they're keeping the Russian forces separate. Right, they're making it so Russia has to has to uh, pay the freight and duplicate these efforts. You know, sixty miles apart, it, they they might as well be on different planets, right? Because that's they're not mutually supportive. So 
we'll have to see. Uh, Ukraine is pushing south of Kyiv right now, but they could turn the tap off and push somewhere else. Uh, I expect them to keep doing that a little bit. I know I would. You know, I'd, I'd press in Kyiv and then I'd press in uh, Velika Novoslika. And then I'd push back and back mood a little bit. I got to just make Russia fight, you know, make Russia dance. You're playing the music, make them dance. But I think we'll have some, uh, I think it'll be, a, I think when the sun comes up, we're going to have some news to report here. Yeah. And maybe even push the Russians uh, farther west in Kamiansky. Uh, uh, so uh, here in Orkiv, uh, the the Russians, even though they have had months to uh, build and reinforce these defensive lines and fortifications to the south, they're relatively hastily built. We're not talking about approaching the Maginot Line or the Siegfried Line. Uh, these are open trenches, and uh, um, and, and and I I understand what you're saying, Truck. Uh, I agree with you. I've seen the same reports. Some of these defensive fortifications uh, are well aligned, well positioned, but are they well built? And do the Russians have the forces to man them? Yep, yeah. spot on, Alan. All of that's got to come together, right? Uh, and you know we. We do a lot of, uh, the, the media can do a lot of hand-wringing about Russia's extensive uh, defensive positions, right? Keep remembering Majno line, folks. That was an impregnable defensive line, and it turned out it had absolutely no bearing on France protecting itself from Germany. It just, it, it didn't do anything, right? So... We've got, we've got all of those same facts converging here. You can have a strong defensive position, but if it's not manned, it doesn't do any good. Then if it is manned and those troops manning the defensive, defensive positions, if they are not adequately supplied or reinforced, it doesn't matter. See how all these little, little things have to click together, uh, including, right, it's not just resupply. If they run out of ammunition, then, you know, they, they might as well go home. But let's say they have, there's pre-positioned ammunition. Okay, great. But the defenders are going to be attrited, right? They're going to lose people in, in daily combat, no matter how strong their positions are or how much of a toll they're taking on their, the attackers. They've got to be remanned. And all those lines of communication and supply, Ukraine looks at a lot of things before it decides to attack. And one of those, you know, they've got better maps than I have access to. And they've got, of course, better intelligence. They know the facts much better than I have to sort of try to figure them out. But they, they look at the places and they look at the roads in the Russian rear. And they, you know, part of, part of reconnoitering, uh, when you, when you recon, conduct a reconnaissance patrol, one of the things that the intelligence officers always want to know when you come back is, 
what does this little stream crossing look like? What does the bridge look like? I mean, they want to know, you know, you've got, you can have a little agricultural canal, but there may be only three places to cross that in 15 miles. And of those places that cross the canal, they won't take a main battle tank, right? And in fact, some of those, they won't take more than 15 or 20 trucks crossing it before the the, the point fails. Then you could have, you know, that necessitates Russia having to bring up bridge crossing equipment just to get across this little water course. Of course, everything I just described to you, that makes a delicious artillery target. So Ukraine is carefully looking at a lot of factors to determine where it's going to attack, when it's going to attack. And, you know, they make projections. How long can the Russians defend position X? What are they going to need daily on, to defend this position if we're attacking it? You know, what are the roads leading into this position? And, and again, with the sort of reconnaissance and overhead imagery and drones and everything else that, that Ukraine possesses, they can knock out the supply convoys. They can knock out the ammunition dumps. And everything has to come together for the Russians to defend these positions. And I didn't mention the most important factor to me always. It's morale. You can have a strong defensive position. You can have troops in there with all the supplies they need, batteries, band-aids, bullets, <laughs> DVRs to watch on their computers. Everything could be golden. But if those guys don't want to fight, they won't fight. They just won't do it. So we're going to see some impressive defensive positions, but we're just going to have to see. The other thing is Ukraine doesn't have to charge in to where the Russians want them to fight. I'm looking at there's a couple of east-west bands of, of uh, Russian entrenchments. There's a lot of maneuver territory in front of those positions, which means that Ukraine could break through in a place like Robotane or Verbove or uh, there's been some action. Uh, we'll go back to Velivka and Novoslika. Uh, and then they don't have to go south. Then they can go east and west, and they can take on one of these, some of the Russian defensive positions that aren't oriented sort of east and west and prepared for a, for a northerly-based attack. They can do a 90-degree turn. There's a couple of dog legs in this Russian uh, defensive band, uh, I guarantee you those are going to be weaker positions. They, they just are. And there are, there are several places where the lines don't meet up. So uh, let's just watch General Zeluzhny and not tell him to work faster because I think he's doing pretty good right now. Yeah, I do too. So one thing we, we never seem to see, Chuck, uh, uh, is Russia striking behind Ukrainian lines. Uh, the, we never see Russia taking out uh, 
uh, concentrations of forces, and and we know Ukraine is gathering forces, uh, both uh, in and behind Kharkiv and, and in Velika Novosilka. Uh, we don't see uh, Russia uh, uh, attacking. Uh, uh, logistics uh, points that the Ukrainians need and use. Uh, are they unable to? You know, are they? Uh, are they? What's happening? Are they just unable uh, to concentrate strikes on on behind the line targets uh, of, uh, of opportunity? Well, generally, their their intelligence is not as good as the Ukrainians. Uh, but ju- just looking at the at the Orkiv map that's up uh, right now, that's 2215 UTC today, uh, there are a couple of places on, on, the, uh, on the line that the Russians hit, and I don't even think that they necessarily even know if Ukrainian forces or logistics are here. Uh, but they just take a guess. Uh, one of the places they hit on the TO815 highway, and that's the highway that goes uh, from Orkiv uh, east and west, little town called uh, Mala Tomachka. Uh, it isn't much of a town. There's like 10 streets in it. But it is at the midpoint, uh, and it's a place where just looking at this map, I would guess that that some Ukrainian, uh, you know, it's a central location. So the Ukrainians must have stuff there. <laughs> and that's not much of a basis to conduct a fire mission, but I think that's adequate for Russian purposes. Uh, a place that is likely uh, more legitimate and sensical target uh, south of Orkiv, the H08 highway goes down and, and then takes a dogleg east and west, and the TO408 continues south. Uh, there it's uh, Novo Andrivka. The Russians hit that almost every day, and that makes sense, right? It's, it's a place where Ukraine would likely, uh, it would be a convenient place to put logistics and reinforcements. The Russians are hitting it, uh, but the fact that it's so obvious, it's such an obvious crossroad, I don't think that Ukraine has really got a lot of stuff there. I think Ukraine is smart enough to, to, uh, to disperse its logistics and to disperse its ammunition depots. But Russia's sort of uh, left to grope blindly for legitimate Ukrainian military targets. And, you know, and that hurts them. They, you know, they don't get a lot of high quality targeting data. I just, I just don't think they do. Uh, you know, I, I need to get a life, but I spend a pretty good portion of every day plotting every Russian fire mission that I can get data on every Russian airstrike that I can get data on. So I see, you know, I see their targeting quite literally every day. And I'm not sure that they're really shooting at, uh, at uh, you know, current targets of opportunity. 
there are a lot of times that I see just simply retaliatory uh, targeting. Folks, they hit they hit these little villages that you know that don't make any sense. I mean, they're, they're, they hit places that I I can't see the military utility of these targets. But that quit. I, I I stopped being amazed by that last April. You know, they they shell places just to shell them. They they destroy little villages just to destroy them. Uh, and as horrible as that is, folks, I'd rather I'd rather that they shell a diverted a, a deserted little. Ukrainian hamlet than actually use those artillery shells in a legitimate fire mission against advancing Ukrainian troops. This is another thing that Russia is helping to attrite its own army, right? They, they waste artillery, you know, in these retaliatory, these punitive uh, harassment and interdiction fires when they frankly should probably be saving these shells up for, uh, real combat but that's who we're fighting that's who the bad guys are in this war the the russians have uh, reduced to rubble uh, more than uh, 70 probably more than a hundred villages Uh, very very small uh, very very small places in ukraine i mean why do that uh, they have no value whatsoever. Uh, it is simply part uh, of Russia's terror attack uh, on Ukraine. Uh, Chuck, we have more hands while we're in Orkiv, uh, and then we will move west. So let's go to Fletch, uh, to Kristaps, to Alex, to Lily. Uh, Fletch, go ahead, please. Thanks, Alan. Yes, Chuck, uh, good summary there on everything. Um, Just a couple of things. Um, On this area of operation, um, a very key thing, you mentioned the General Popov, I think it was, um, who had been removed from command, who was commanding this area of operations for the Russians. So I did some digging and, and found a few things out. Um, apparently, he may be in Syria, but uh, you know nothing's confirmed there yet. Um, but reading into his main gripe, um, and, and, it, and I think it summarizes what you've been saying all along about morale. Um, his main gripe, and he was going to report to Putin, but he got sacked because he was overruled by uh, Gerasimov, apparently, and Shogu. But he was going to complain about the fact that the troops in this area of operation were not getting rotated out. Um, And also as well, the indication was, and I picked up on some of the mill Russian mill bloggers or what they were saying in, and they're still saying it to to, today, actually, on the same thing they're mentioning it, is how this area of line, they're worried about to collapse Now, I'm not saying that's general or whatever, but this is what the Russians are saying about their own lines. So that that needs to be bearing thinking. Now, also as well, on the uh, the Ukrainian side, um, there's been some disingenuous information coming out from the Western media 
about how Ukraine is making its main push in this area. And I'm sure a lot of people have picked it up on, especially American news. You know, I was listening to it today. Now, um, if you want to know some insightful information, Chuck has always mentioned the Institute of Study of War. So I went to listen to one of um, his interviews, um, and he, he basically says the same. You know, because while Ukraine have, if you remember, Chuck, we spoke on Tuesday about how Zelensky said pace was going to be upped, but we weren't thinking about a major push. But, you know, offensive will start to be, the pace will start to increase. Well, woe well and behold, on the next day, it happened, didn't it? And this is what all the, the media was picking up on. They thought it was the main push. But what it turns out to be is around 80 to 100 vehicles um, were, were making good inroads, you know, and you'll cover a lot of that in your next, uh, your next map. So basically, it's a misinterpretation and over-eagerness. And I never, when, when the media says anonymous um, sources, then I always wonder, oh, yeah, you know, is it just you creating creating something because you've got no news on Ukraine and you want to um, want to make it more interesting for the public? So bear that, that. That's two things, you know, certainly readers and listeners need to consider. The Russians themselves think they're very weak in this area. General Zelensky has said the pace will pick up. Um, and on the logistics side, Chuck summed it up regarding the dispersal. Uh, I found a little area. Um, I know someone who, who was part of the wargaming efforts in this, um, and logistics was a big part of it. And he summed it up to me in two simple ways. Russia has to deal with their logistics in around 15% of Ukraine. Ukraine has the rest, 85%. So you can imagine all its reserves and all its troops are not near the front line. They'll only be brought in just in time. Now, that's an old accounting term, just in time logistics. Now, you can imagine it's very difficult to hit dispersed logistics when it's over 85% of the country. It could be anywhere. Yeah, I can imagine one fuel truck and another one a mile away. It'll be something of that nature because General Salusi has been spot on with his logistics. He disperses it, as Chuck has said, so it's never going to be congregated. But the, but the forces at the front will receive it just in time. So if the Russians are thinking these lines are weak and are ready to collapse, then General Salusi, no doubt, has got a good insight into that as well. Oh, I couldn't push uh, yeah, that. But... Chuck, Chuck oh, go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead, Alan. I was just going to, I was, I, I, was, I, I uh, lost my train of thought, and that, that's not good because the train's now going around the block. Well, it, you know, I, I think, uh, uh, Fletch, uh, that uh, Ukraine uh, Central Command under, under General Zeluzhny uh, they review a few things every single night. Uh, I bet first is, well, I actually, because uh, we know something about General Zeluzhny, uh, first uh, would be uh, Ukrainian losses because he cares about his soldiers, number one. Uh, that is his primary concern. Uh, second, logistics. Uh, and exactly as you say, uh, 
uh, Ukraine will never concentrate uh, their ammo depots. They will disperse them. I, I think third, uh, where is Russian uh, forces, where are Russian forces uh, showing weakness? Uh, where on the 600 mile long uh, front uh, do we see Russian weakness uh, that we can uh, strike through? It, it, it's probably not up in Kremlin. Obviously, it's not maybe even in Bakhmut, uh, but it's certainly here uh, where uh, Donetsk and Zaporizhia oblasts uh, uh, join, uh, because it is here uh, that the Ukrainian forces can strike south uh, to the Sea of Azov, uh, can uh, strike south and, and cut off uh, Russian forces uh, east and west, and and come to the threshold of Crimea. You know, Chuck has always said there's going to be a battle in Takmak, there's going to be a battle in Melitopol, there's going to be a battle in Berdyansk, right on the shore of Az of the Sea of Azov. There's going to be a battle in uh, Mariupol, uh, which is sacred ground for Ukraine. Chuck? Yeah, and w one of the things that uh, General Pafov was complaining about, of course, the, the rotation of troops, like you said, Fletch, then, you know, there's the mark of a commander who, uh, at the very least, sees that, you know, the, the elements he commands, one of the resources he commands, his, his men, you know, they're getting tired. They're getting worn out. They aren't fighting as well as they could because you know they've been they've been rode hard and put away wet that that was that was one of his complaints and for that i found you know some admirable things in his character as despicable as he is but one of the other things he was complaining about is that his forces had no counter battery uh capability right so he's complaining that Notice he didn't complain that he doesn't have enough artillery. Uh, he didn't complain about that. He complained that they complained that they had no counter battery capability. Meaning, in translated, he's complaining that the Ukrainians can shell his positions and his men with impunity. So, the Ukrainians are able to detect incoming Russian fire while it's in the air know what kind of round it is, know where it's going to land, but critically know exactly the position of the Russian gun that fired it. And we just, it's funny, this segued right into it. We were just talking about the Russians getting up every morning and just destroying a village or two. Good, good on you, Ivan. I mean, really groovy. While they're doing that, Ukraine is computing the position of the guns that are undertaking that fire mission and, and knocking them off. And every day, Ukraine is knocking off somewhere between 10, 15, 20 Russian artillery pieces. We had a viewer, a uh, listener on Tuesday saying, Ukraine is attriting 1% of Russia's artillery every day. Wow. So let's put the offensive in perspective, and especially for the impatient journalists covering the war. What's going to make the Ukrainian offensive more likely to succeed? 
if if they're trading one percent of the Russian artillery, do you think we can we can wait thirty days? So Russia has only two thirds of the artillery that it has now, or we wait sixty days and they're down two thirds. They've only got a third of their artillery. You know, we could all do that math. What General Popoff was complaining about, here's what makes that so important. I mean, he isn't just complaining that his guys don't get to destroy hamlets the way he wants them. Where that counter-battery fire comes in, and it's so important, Ukraine is attacking some position. Let's say it's Verbove. The Russian soldiers on the ground there aren't going to report, look, I'm being attacked by a company-sized element of Ukrainians. I need, I need artillery fire. When the Russian guns open up in support of this position, they get knocked out. One, two, three, four, they get knocked out. So that makes those Ukrainian attacks, you know, 100% more likely to succeed. So this, you know, I don't even want to call it the long game. The, the, the midterm planning of this offensive and as General Zeluzhny said, look, before any of this unfolded, you know, this was weeks ago, a month ago, six weeks ago, his first goal is to attrite the Russian artillery. And that's what's so important. Because once he can get the Russians, once he, once he can puncture these lines and start pushing them back, you know, it, it isn't just a matter of knocking out, let's say, you know, the real simple math, you knock out half of the Russian artillery pieces. Everyone can see that that that's great just on itself. The numbers are great. But let's say you knock out one third of them, right? The Russians can't just take X number of artillery shells and space them, artillery pieces, and space them equally all all around the line of contact. They need to concentrate those artillery pieces so they can address Ukrainian points of attack. If you, if you diminish the numbers of the, of the self-propelled guns and, and artillery towed artillery pieces they have, there's less of them to get to the point of attack. See what I mean? If you, if you diminish that resource, you make it harder to distribute. And, and that's the goal here. So even attriting the Russian artillery numbers, at, you know, 10 or 15%, that has such a big effect. You know, you're, you're, you're reducing the, the quantity of the product to be distributed. Then you add to that Ukraine very cleverly picking the points of attack so it can see the lines of communication and supply, right? Because these artillery pieces, they have to get into position, right? They have to be towed into position uh, in the case of a towed piece. In the, self, in the case of the self-propelled pieces, they get there under their own power. But they're not very fast, Right. You don't tow an artillery piece down the highway at 85 miles an hour. You, you've often got to go across country. Remember those little bridges we were talking about that go over canals and little creeks and, you know, boggy patches? 
and see now you now you can see the that whole bigger picture. So uh, I, that's why General Popoff is complaining about his counter battery capability, because his artillery as a resource and his artillery gunners are getting ground up, and that's important. And I think the other reason why General Popoff was complaining, and he's saying things like breakthrough, it's because he's been given a he's give, been given a military task, and he's saying, look, my resources are inadequate. You're not giving me what I need to hold on to this position. That's important. And see, those are the kind of guys you want to listen to. And there's lots of military bloggers, and some of them are clowns just like me, right? Looking at open source material and uh, grinding out and uh, producing analysis. But you've got somebody like General Popoff, and he put his career on the line and maybe his life on the line to complain about this and and taking the the extreme and ultimate measure having failed i presume by exhausting all other means of address he had uh to his superiors he finally has to go public with it right it just tells me that the dysfunction in the russian command system it it's incredible Right. It's incredible. I have to admire Popoff a little bit because the situation has gotten so bad that he finally put his career on the line. Right. But here's another good thing, folks. It didn't do any good. Right. It didn't do any good. Shoigu did not fly out there, look at the situation and say, General, I'm going to give you what you need to win in this sector. No. Why would he say that? Just fire him, throw him off a balcony, send him to Syria, whatever he's going to do, but remove him from command, Minister Shoigu, by all means. You can't have a general in Ukraine who gives a flying S for his men. You can't have that. Just see how effed up the whole system is? It's incredible. It's incredible. And who do you think Shoigu's going to send to take over that guy's command? It's going to be some clown. It's going to be some yes man. It's going to be somebody wholly unqualified to hold that position. And guess what? Popoff was likely a decent officer. He's going to be replaced with somebody who isn't, and they're not going to do a better job. Shoigu didn't solve the problem of the counter batteries capability. And the Ukrainians, one of the reasons that counter-battery problem exists is Ukraine has been concentrating its fire on Russian counter-battery radar systems. They're called Zooparks, is the NATO call-out name. So, you know, a good thing to do. Get up every morning, you're reading the news, type in Zoopark in today's date and see if the Ukrainians got one. You know, those are the little things, folks, that the whole, that whole battle spaces can turn on. But the big news to me is, look, not only is there dysfunction in the, in the Russian high command, look, there are purges still going on. Shoigu is still looking to even the score in clean house. You know, maybe General Popoff was too close to uh, Prigozhin. Maybe he was a little bit too sympathetic to the message that Prigozhin was 
was shouting at the top of his lungs that the people in Moscow's, Moscow are clowns and we're going to lose this war unless you turn it around. And you know, Prigozhin, I agree with you, bud. I agree with you. You're right. You are going to lose this war. Uh, Chuck, I want to uh, emphasize one thing uh, you just said. Uh, Ukraine is taking out 20 or as many as 25 Russian artillery pieces, uh, Russian artillery emplacements, uh, radars, uh, etc. A day. A day. Uh, and what does this mean? Uh, as Chuck pointed out, when you want to concentrate your artillery fire, uh, you have to draw it together. Uh, it makes uh, all those artillery pieces uh, even more juicy targets. Uh, and Ukraine is waiting to take those out too. Uh, it is really important for us to get to Velika Novosilka, uh, but before we move on, uh, we are going to take the remaining hands here, uh, uh, and we'll go to Kristaps, uh, Ranch Hand, uh, Brian, and Alex. Kristaps. Hello there. Uh, I have a bunch bunch of news. Um, I'm, I'm Latvi. Hello there. Uh, first of all, I recently just finished my article for Foreign Policy Magazine, about Igor Kukin and the upcoming purges. ongoing purges of, of this whole Russian patriot thing. And I had the news to tell you because I have just leaked uh, Russian propaganda instructions for today. Huge, huge cultural day. But my friend Abdullah here. And I'd like to fix Chuck on something because he just made a blatant mistake. Very, very bad one. But Mr. Popov did not go public. This was a message intended directly for those in his command, which was then leaked by the propagandists. He did not show courage. He was really a good general, yes, and showed things, but he did not go public with this one. So your respect for him is totally, you know, not deserved. And this was leaked without him knowing that. Secondly, Institute for Study of War is not a reliable source and should not be listened to because, for one, whenever they hear Russian slang in which these soldiers tend to talk, they just disregard it and pretend it never happened. So they miss out on a lot of information and they, they get surprised a lot about various things and their information is just oftentimes because I highly doubt they have anyone actually speaking Russian on their team. If I who's going back to Ukraine for the fourth time very soon can be legitimately more accurate and faster about this and all the stuff that you said, I literally just posted an episode about this, than they can, well then something's wrong with it. I have written an email. I just say I'm just saying to you that keep a lot of the stuff that the Russians say. They're a good source. Everything they say is good and legitimately tried and everything, but they skip a lot of things and make wrong decisions because they simply do not understand Russian slogans or much Russian sayings. Well this those are two minor which is that the other again I have I have a car tomorrow we're gonna go or tomorrow day after we go back to Ukraine with the film crew and everything we're gonna go to Odessa film there produce full hundred reports from all of those and I'll be able to come on when I will be in Ukraine that's important to me. Kirstops, uh, uh, yeah, uh, your audio uh, is really 
uh, breaking up for me. I don't know if, if for others, uh, but uh, one. This thing should be I better. This think, should be better. This point. This should be better. Yep, at this point, I think. It is. Better. Thank you. My Wi-Fi just destroyed itself, so I just switched to a mobile network. <laughs> Good. Uh, I Thank have, you. I have. I have. I, I have, I have two news that I really need to, need to speak about. First of all, uh, if you all know about the mobilization laws that were uh, introduced in Russia yesterday about this age and everything, well, in the Republic of Chechnya, one of the parts over there, they have now introduced a law that you will no longer be able to have a passport, which would, which you can uh, without your parents up until the age of 30, which means that totalitarian control is up to par. And secondly, I'd like to read you, like I said, the guide from um, this whole thing that the, today every Vakik ever is going to be spewing about because today is the anniversary of baptism of Rus, one of the most important religious part, religious celebrations in all of Orthodox Christianity. The day when in 1988, uh, Kiev Rus ruler Volodymyr the Great Christianized all the situation. And there's an important quote of how uh, everything's going on. Um, they are explaining the fact that how to explain that we're fighting that Russians are fighting against Ukrainians because it was baptized in Kiev with this glorious quote, which has been sent as an official memo to all the official state media and everyone. And I'd like to give you this quote. <clears throat> Today, our country is battling a new satanic regime. The Kiev regime is deliberately destroying Orthodox Christianity on the territory of Ukraine, applying direct pressure against priests and seizing churches. The Nazi Satanists, which is always funny, uh, have entrenched themselves in the holy Russian city of Kiev, where Rus was baptized. Russia has come to the defense of the Orthodox faith and is crushing neo-Nazis who worship the occult ideas of Hitler and Bandera on the front. So, yeah, you're going to see a lot of that today on the media. If you know Russian, and if you can follow this, please, please follow on this stuff. It's going to be great. They have now stating that it was actually all Russia and that they are now desecrating the legacy. But, you know, they forget about the fact that they can just destroy cathedrals in uh, Odessa. I just wanted to be like, I had a lot of points. Sorry about that. But I just really wanted to fix you on things. And, uh, yeah, I hope this, this is informative for you guys. It, it, it is, Christophs. Thank you very much. Uh, so uh, a lot more Russian propaganda coming our way. Uh, over the next few days. Uh, and uh, uh, very interesting what you say about General Popov. Uh, in, in other words, uh, I guess what you're suggesting is that Popov uh, was set up, right? See, that's yeah, the thing. Got... Uh, it was basically, yeah, because things like there are other uh, special forces units from Vedave and others who now think that their generals are going to come, uh, come after being well, they'll get crushed, and now they're making public videos about, like, if you're going to come after our general, you might have to go to Moscow and do things like this. Uh, Girkin's arrest, again, which is what I wrote an article about, has spurred a whole new thing where, you know, they're trying to get trying to get people out of the situation. Uh, again, sorry for, for this. Just that I literally just wrote an article about this, so, yeah. Chris Epps, I just I just gave you a, uh, a follow, and I, listen, I absolutely... Thank you for for bringing that up. Uh, we we don't get enough, uh, you know, real term uh, translation ability. Uh, you know, of course, I don't speak the language. And and look, you're always welcome to come up with that information. And you know, I I, I agree with you about General Popoff. But once he made that statement and released it to his troops, he had to know that it was going to go viral. Right. Once once you 
he made that film and he, he probably played right into Shoigu's hands by doing that, but greatly appreciate you coming up and uh, you made important points and uh, yeah, we need to get your audio fixed because I was, I was hanging on your every word, but I had a hard time uh, getting it, but uh, it's, it's groovy now and thanks for coming up. Always appreciate it. Uh, Chris stops. I want to take a few more hands uh, and then, really get to Velika Novosilka. Uh, so let's go to Ranch Hand, to Brian, to Alex, uh, and please, each of you, uh, be concise. So Ranch Hand, Ranch Hand your audio is uh, inaudible. Uh, it, it is uh, at zero. Uh, see if you can fix it. Uh, no, it's like you're 100 miles from your microphone. And it's a hundred. It's a hundred miles of pasture. All the cows are in the way. But uh, I can't hear them at all. Ellen is is is, is there actually a signal? Ranch hand. I'm sorry, bud. Yeah, I I can't hear him at all either. He's going to recycle and come back maybe. So let's go to Brian, then to Alex. Uh, I guess first of all, mic check. You got me paranoid here, Alex. Oh, you. We got loud you, Brian. And loud and clear. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, good to talk to you guys again. Uh, good to talk to you, Chuck. Um, so, um, question. So, um, this two-pronged attack here uh, with Robove and uh, south of Robotini or Robote, uh, however we pronounce it. I've heard it pronounced three or four way, different ways. Two questions. Number one, the uh, that main highway, the T0408, I think it's uh, I think it is that goes south from Robotny. So I'm going to make a guess that one of the Ukraine's priorities is going to be to drive west to kind of seal off. Because if it seems like there's Russian forces that are in Robotny and even to the northwest there are, are heavily or they might be heavily reliant on that highway for supply. And if, if Ukraine cuts that highway, then the 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 uh, are the the are the remaining troops in Robotny screwed? Um, and, and so, you know, not necessarily having to do a street-by-street -street fight in to take Robotny. You just, if you sever that highway, does that mean that the, the forces in Robotny and northwest of Robotny potentially are in are in, uh, in trouble of being uh, cut off from supply? And then my, my follow-up question to that is, does opening that second drive into towards Verbove does that signify that uh, the Ukraine is potentially prioritizing a drive to the Sea of, of, of Azov and, and uh, because of the success they've had up to this point? Yeah, uh, sort of a qualified yes to, to all of that. And I'm, I'm going from memory because I closed the major map file. Uh, but uh, looking at the Orkiv axis there, uh, the... Uh, T05, uh, T0408, uh, it comes up from Tokmak and about 20 miles to the south of this map, uh, the road takes a Y. And uh, obviously the, the road that diverges and goes off to the east would, would be the way to supply Vervobev, but the road doesn't exactly go there. So that is one of the reasons that uh, Ukraine came out of Orkiv and kept hitting uh, Robotny. Uh, 
It kept concentrating the Russian forces there with an eye on the fact that even though it's only, you know, eight, nine kilometers from Robotny to Verbove going east and west, the Russian supply line, there, there, there isn't a sort of parallel road that goes, you know, <laughs> from Robotny to Verbove. The, it, you, you see, it, I, I, it, it's hard for me to explain. Tomorrow's map will actually show where the where the where the road diverges. So it it it's the perfect example of of what we've been saying that you know Ukraine is choosing points of attack that are are difficult for Russia to supply, and even though Robotne and Verbove are are pretty close together. The lines of communication and supply. Uh, if if you're let's say you got you got two boxes of bullets, and one's going to Robotny and one's going to Verbove, you've got to split those two boxes twenty miles south of the zero line, and you send one to the right, and it has to go miles and miles and miles down the hypotenuse of this triangle. And the other box can go pretty much straight north and, north and south down the base of the triangle. So just that factor right there would have made war planners months ago plan, about, uh, plan this battle south of Orkiv. Knowing you, you're pushing on Robotny, you get the Russians to concentrate there and you you can shift your attack, speaking as a Ukrainian here, because you have the interior lines of communication. Now you push your attack to Verbove, and the Russians, having being forced to use exterior lines of communication, and on top of that, given this uh, disadvantageous uh, condition of the roads, you know, so this was a long time coming. I think. And, you know, I'm happy to pat myself on the back, but this is exactly what we talked about on Tuesday. And I think even that's how we ended the show. We, we I said, watch Verbove, but I'm no military genius, folks. You know, I just look at the maps and I, you know, you can just see it. It's staring you right in the face. But here's even what I, what I think. Look, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, it's going to be a, a, a rainy weekend here. It's raining now. It's been raining. It, it started raining uh, yesterday night. It's going to rain till about Sunday, I think. I wouldn't be surprised if Ukraine slows down a little bit in Rahiv and they start pushing in other places. Uh, I don't think they want to give Russia necessarily time to regroup and dig in and resupply. So that militates, you know, keeping the, keeping the pressure on. Uh, but the terrain is going to be really wet. And one other thing, I think you're probably going to see them keep pushing on Verbove. And, and here's why the, 
the TO408 coming up from uh, from Tokmak gets a nice hard road, right? For Ru- Russian forces to reinforce Verbove, those are really crappy roads, and it's raining, and they're going to turn them into soup. And all, right, all Ukraine needs to do is get into the town, right? Then they can hold it. So the weather is bad, but Ukraine can turn it to its advantage. But the other thing to look for is, and I promise you this is going to happen tomorrow with a crystal ball. It's going to be another major Ukrainian push, and it's not going to be in Orkiv. I don't know exactly where it's going to come, but I promise you they're going to hit them somewhere else, starting at dawn, and for the same reason, to present Russia with another set of logistical problems. And uh, that works because Russian command and control, in my experience, has got very limited bandwidth. They don't do well with a whole lot of brush fires. They don't seem to have the intellectual capital slash military experience to deal with multiple problem sets. And especially if they are, you know, distributed uh, geographically, they, they have a hard time doing that. So we'll see. But it's fascinating. <laughs> you know, it's, it's fascinating to watch. Uh, and, and Chuck, I, I don't think that the Russian forces west of Verbove are well supplied at all. Uh, well, maybe they are well supplied. I, I, I don't know. What are you? What do you think? Oh, oh, I, I, I thought I had the button push. Sorry. I, you know, I, I should have used the other map template today because I've got another map that shows, you know, it, it shows more of the Russian rear area, and you know, you, folks, you can see there, <laughs> there aren't any direct or good roads into Verbove. So, like I said about those two boxes of bullets, uh, you you know from an, from that same point uh, where the road splits, uh, the 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 resupply coming from Tokmak uh, to Robotane goes X uh, distance, but to get to Verbove, it's almost twice as far. Uh, you know because of that triangle. It's going, it, it has to travel the hypotenuse. Uh, and, and we've seen Ukraine take advantage of these, uh, you know, they look at the road network and, and they, they figure out where is going to be the most difficult place for Russia to keep up a steady supply. What, what places on this map present the greatest logistical challenges to Ukraine. And it is not merely coincidental that that is where Ukraine has opened these four or five active uh, portions of the front. Every one of them conform to aberrations in the road network. So again, I mean, this tells me that, that, you know, this, this campaign has been studied it has been war-gamed. It has been reverse-engineered. They do that reverse planning thing that you know we did in the SEAL teams. 
what's the first thing you plan for a case of beer for when the, when the mission's over and you completely work backwards and then you do critical note analysis and you say, what are the three things that could go wrong to make my operation fail? And you build redundancy into every one of those things. So that's what we're seeing here in Orkiv. It's, uh, it, 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 it's interesting. And this has been, you know, this has been a long-term, uh, not long-term, but look, they, they had a, they had a 10 day plan, a 20 day plan, a 30 day plan, a 40 day plan. And, uh, you know, we're looking at a two month battle here. I, I, that's what I absolutely think. Uh, Chuck, I, th- I think we're going to close out, uh, Thursday night bullet points, uh, with a very close look, uh, at Velika Novosilka. Uh, and we're going to zoom in first, uh, and then zoom out. Uh, we're going to zoom in, uh, so we can talk about, uh, Ukrainian, uh, troops, uh, liberating uh, Starom uh, Mayorsky. Uh, this will probably re- uh, uh, result in Russian retreat from uh, Eurozhani. Uh, but here is another point uh, on uh, on this you know, axis of uh, of the Ukrainian counteroffensive, where Ukraine is strong. They're on both sides uh, of the Mokri. At Yali River, they are driving Russian forces south. <laughs> you know, south, south, south. This is this is one point where uh, the the Russian engagement is truly going south. It means that Ukraine is going to eighty six a whole lot of Russian troops here. Yeah, he's got a smile out of me. I don't think. Some some listeners probably don't know what getting 86 is, but Alan, I think you and I probably had a good time in college because we get 86 out of bars. So out of uh, uh, Velika Novoslika, the the TO518 goes goes straight south, where of course Ukraine wants to be. Uh, there's been big fighting uh, around Staromayorsky. Uh, three days ago, Ukraine actually had a lodgement in the town, and that sort of close of map-making business this afternoon. Uh, I had heard reports earlier in the day, but they started coming faster and uh, and and uh, thicker in the afternoon. Uh, Ukraine has apparently liberated uh, Storomyaski, and what's important about that, folks, is that is. It is uh, on the west side uh, of the river. Uh, there's a Russian airstrike plotted there. Uh, I got that confirmation almost in real time. Uh, it occurred just as the uh, Ukrainian forces were pushing through the town. Uh, as we saw in Bakhmut uh, earlier, this was Russians calling in an airstrike to cover uh, their retreat. Uh, let's call it a withdrawal at this point. Um, these are always terrific things when when you see this. And, you know, I, I get the contact reports and I get the fire mission reports. And then I sort of try to take them apart and kind of line them up in a, in a, in a timeline. 
And when, when you've got an airstrike that does not precede a Russian advance, right, I have to look at what the Ukrainians are doing and when does that Russian airstrike, when do they commit these, you know, uh, air assets? And, you know, that always tells me that something is urgent for the Russians, right? You're calling in, you know, because presumably they had artillery. It either wasn't at it, it wasn't adequate uh, to to their needs, of course, because the the Ukrainians were overrunning their positions, and uh, you know they call in this air air, air asset. So I kind of knew when I got the information on that airstrike that things weren't going well uh, for the Russians. There's another interesting thing going on to the west of that, a little town there, uh, Prayutuni. Uh, that, that town has changed hands or been in a gray zone. Uh, it has been occupied, and then the Russians w- withdrew, not even under fire. They seem to go up there and come back. But now that's being pressed by the Ukrainians from the north, like the arrow shows, and also from the west. If you're a Russian tonight, uh, manning positions to the west of the TO518, you you have to have your guns facing west, right? You have to deal with the fact that Ukraine could be coming from the west and moving uh, towards towards the uh, TO518. You also have to worry that Ukrainians are coming from the north, right, following up on the on the victory at Staromayorsky. And uh, then you go down and you see those two burning tanks there, uh, right where the, the TO518 enters that dogleg of, of the Russian positions. That obviously tells you that Ukraine is pushing down there as well. Uh, the T-80 and the T-72, those are some of Russia's better tanks, not, not the best, but, uh, not the T-55s. So you can see that the Russian salient there is under attack from three sides. Uh, if I were a Russian commander and, uh, this, theirs was a regular army, I would certainly withdraw to shorten my lines, right? Regroup around uh, Zatnadny Baziana right there. That would be a a really good good thing to do. Uh, I don't think the Russians will do it. They will stay uh, too long. And there are only two bridges west of the TO518. One of them is... Uh, one of them is uh, trying to. I should have marked them. Uh, one of them is right around where the. Uh, uh, let's see, right about where the barrel of the left-hand burning tank is. There's a bridge there. Then there's another one under the call-out box that says Ukraine is assaulting uh, north and east. When those two bridges get blown. There won't be any way for the Russians to move infantry fighting vehicles or tanks that they have. They're going to have to be uh, abandoned. 
So what we may see tomorrow, we may see the Russians retreat and blow those bridges, or we may see the Ukrainians focus artillery or precision strike munitions and blow those two bridges, and I'll have them marked tomorrow. But they may be blown up, uh, you know, by the time we get that we get that uh, uh, that report in. So, an interesting and uh, dynamic situation here. A lot could happen tonight. So uh, we'll see. And and again, the, this is this is one of those situations, right? Ukraine took a good hard look at the road network. And, you know, they, they conduct these attacks and it's based on just right little insignificant, uh, crossing point. I don't know what those bridges look like, but I bet they're just, they're the kind of things. If you were driving at 60 miles an hour in your car, you wouldn't even notice it. Right. But when it's taken out, you can't get a tank across it. So I think we'll see a big adjustment in the line tomorrow. And if it's not big, uh, someone's going to have to do something about those bridges. So another really interesting place to watch. Maybe the most interesting place on the, on the whole battlefield tomorrow. Yeah, I, I think it is the most interesting place. I, I guess that's why we left it until last. Uh, so if you're a Russian uh, soldier... Uh, in uh, uh, Priutini, uh, and you are facing an attack uh, from the west, uh, and you engage it, it means your right uh, uh, shoulder uh, is exposed to the attack from the north. Uh, if you uh, engage the attack from the north, it means your left shoulder uh, is exposed to the attack from the west. And this looks like uh, a place where Ukrainian forces can make a really deep and significant advance. Yeah, Alan, you know, you you don't need to go to the command and staff college anymore because and you know what honestly, you you've been doing this longer than the course is at the command and staff college and and you you've hit it right on right on the head. Getting attacked on your right or left shoulder is the quintessential definition of getting flanked. And you you can't be oriented in both positions, right? You are going to have to face north or you are going to have to face west. And there is no splitting the difference. Uh, you know, your field of fire is not the same. It has to be... You know, you have to be firing at 270 with your with your weapons facing west, or you have to be facing 000 with your weapons facing north, right? If you've got them facing at uh, 300 degrees, folks, that isn't going to cut it here. So it's taken a while for Ukraine to develop this, you know, dilemma that's facing the Russians tonight which is why the fighting has been so stubborn around Starov Mayorsky. That's why the Russians were clinging to that place, you know, tooth and nail. And that's why it's taken, God, I don't know, it's three weeks 
to 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 compel the Russians to withdraw from there. And again, you know, I want to put I want to I want to hand everybody the skill to take, you know, you know, look at the contact reports, look at the artillery strike missions and and, you know, look at the airstrikes. And that will give you an idea of how bad the situation became uh, for the Russians this afternoon. The other thing to look around here at this, uh, you know, at the at the fire missions today, uh, not a lot of outgoing Russian artillery fire. And we're looking at some sort of uh, perfunctory targets. You know, they hit downtown Velika Novoslika like they always do. They hit uh, Zolotna Naya like they always do you know these are just they hit vuladar like they always do but i don't see you know i don't see any fire missions in places where ukraine was likely to be mustering forces with the single exception of an airstrike on rivnopil that strikes me as a place that ukraine likely was if I had to guess what the Russians hit at Rivnopil, I would say it was likely a Ukrainian, or they thought there would be a Ukrainian headquarter element there. Uh, regardless, it didn't it didn't stop the progress of of uh, Ukrainian forces, and this was a this was a pretty important day in terms of developing this battle space. This was a this was a big day for Ukraine. And, uh, you know, fighting didn't stop when the sun went down, right? That's when, you know, nighttime is where Ukraine has an advantage and it always presses it. It always presses it. So there are guys fighting right now. What time is it uh, in Kiev right now? The sun's getting ready to come up. It's about 530. Uh, you know, there's another thing of troop rotation. The guys that fought all night, they're going to fall back a little bit. Well, they're not going to fall back. They're going to be, they're going to be augmented in their fighting positions. Some guys are going to get some sleep, and the Ukrainians are going to just keep pushing it. But I'll tell you who's not going to get any sleep is the Russians. And one more thing to add, you guys can all see the T-0518 highway. You see it. Ukrainian artillery spotters see it. And that is the sole line of communication and supply for every Russian who's now trying to hold on to their positions uh, north of Eurozani. And I don't think they're going to hold on to them. Uh, this, this was the sort of keystone of, of Russia's hold uh, on the Mocha Yali River, River Valley. So we'll see tomorrow. I mean, I got some exciting mapping to do, Alan. And I can't wait to see it. Uh, would you say, Chuck, that, that uh, all along this this 650-mile-long uh, uh, line of engagement, that, uh, I mean, we know that fighting is intense really on every mile. Uh, and in some places, Ukraine is finding Russian weakness. Uh, but this intensity of battle uh, is a change in the ongoing war. 
you know, President Zelensky says the you know they're entering a new phase, um, and good on him. Uh, but I don't I don't see it yet. Uh, I I see the you know I see. I see important developments in Orkiv and uh, Vlika, Nova Slika, uh, and important developments in, in Bakhmut, but I haven't seen that Sunday punch yet. And that's good because things aren't going well for the Russians. And uh, if you're a Russian, it's time to bite down on your mouthpiece because uh, the big hits are going to come. And I'm glad to see, uh, you know, despite the West, the impatient of uh, certain members of the Western media, I'm glad to see that that Ukraine has meticulously developed the points of contact that it's dealing with now. Uh, you know, it it has it has studied the battle space. It has looked for for non-optimal combat uh, conditions for the Russians. It's, it's worked diligently and slowly to exacerbate Russian logistical problems. It has patiently uh, worked to, to breach Russian defenses and, uh, you know, provide safe crossing points uh, across these minefields for, for Ukrainian troops. Um, and and it's you know they they're they're doing everything they can to uh, ensure success and to improve their own odds of success. You know that that's just the way you should do it. And and again, you know, there's 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 no point in doing something now that would cost you 10 times the casualties and materiel than waiting four weeks or three weeks or two weeks or, or even 72 hours. Wait until you can do it essentially cost-free. That's what you want to do. And, uh, you know, I, that's the way I see the war going. And uh, I have to commend them, you know. It's, and again, folks, look, the war's not going to be over for, by Christmas. So there's no point in, in fighting like there's some kind of time limit. There, there isn't. And uh, let's make the Russians sweat this out. And let's make sure that when we hit them, they are, they are incapable of, of resisting, right? Make sure that you, when you finally punch them, you knock them on their butt and you run them over. That's the way you want to win this war. And don't ever forget, Russia doesn't even have a plan to win this war. They don't. All they're doing right now is trying to hang on to what they've stolen from Ukraine. And we're not going to let them hold on to it, right? We're going to kick their ass and send them packing. But going to do it smart. Uh, so patience, folks, patience. Uh, Chuck, we're going to close out bullet points uh, today on Thursday night uh, with two final hands, uh, Christops uh, and Karen. 
Uh, but both Kristaps, Karen, be concise. Oh, yeah, of course. I will be concise, really, because I'm reading all the Russian news. I'm reading at what the Russian war correspondents are posting on their side. They are all completely silent about the Ukraine achievements and about all the situation here, except that they are now reporting what Putin said today, earlier today. Because, again, over here is about about exactly the same time as Kiev. It's 5.30 a.m. at this moment. But it's just funny how Putin said, quote, yesterday on his speech, all attempts at the Ukrainian counteroffensive have been stopped. The enemy has been driven back with heavy losses, and the enemy has had no success in any, any of the battlefields. They claim to have uh, uh, have killed 200 Ukrainians uh, yesterday. Well, for me, yesterday. I'm a bit forward in the future for you. And apparently lost 10 times less. This just shows that exactly as, as Chuck said, Russians have no plan. And okay, the, the funniest part is that this is also shown during the time when he met these so-called war correspondents. What's important, though, however, is that uh, currently, uh, literally yesterday, Belgorod Territorial Defense, which is like a militia on the Belgorod Oblast on the Russian side, they have also now posted a video calling for freedom for Igor Girkin Stralkov just a few hours ago, which means that, um, yeah, they don't know what's... Their their leadership is clueless, their internal forces are divided, and, yeah, I'll be up here all all day long, I'm going to be scouring through all the situation and keeping everyone updated. But uh, it's just like Chuck said, it's going to be a difficult day for them, especially if they cannot even look straight up and admit their own problems. Thank you. Well, Christoph, I've, I've given you a follow and I'm, I'm looking forward to your reporting. So, uh, yeah, absolutely. Thanks and keep an eye on them. And uh, I'll be looking for your dispatches. Uh, uh, Karen, go ahead, please. I have a question for uh, Chuck. Has your opinion of uh, Prigozhin changed at all? Uh, It seems that he showed up at the Russia-Africa summit. Uh, He was kind of dressed down. He kind of looked like uh, he was doing Homer Simpson cosplay. And uh, (laughs) he didn't seem the least bit nervous. And the guy has got to have more lives than a cat up until this point. Now, I know that could change, but do you have, has your opinion on him changed at all? He does seem to have good social skills. You know, I I think he's a murderous thug. I think there was a little bit of a triumph here. Uh, Not very many African leaders decided to attend this Russia-Africa summit. There are somewhere between 20 and 35,000 Wagner operators in Africa where folks, they are military advisors to some of the most despicable, uh, horrendous military dictators on the planet. And their principal function in those countries is to Uh, enforce the slave labor conditions of the local people who are forced to work exploiting the natural resources of these countries, like, for example, the Central African Republic. Uh, It is a trillion dollar a year industry. Uh, The the pillaging of of African national uh, natural resources, uh, that money goes to Brzozian and to uh, Putin Probably the only thing that kept Prozosian alive uh, was that he controls the 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 money 
the gold literally from from Africa. Um, but I don't. Have I'm, any... sorry, I'm, I'm sorry, Chuck. But I, Chuck, I'm very sorry. I have to. I'm Prigozhin hurts me. I just want to put this in for you guys. So you understand, Prigozhin's troll farms literally destroyed my my family in the marriage because when I started out my show. These guys called my wife's little sister, and she killed herself because of them when she was 17, because she had depression. And then later on, last year, they uh, exploded my girlfriend's car, and I nearly died in that explosion. Prigozhin is a scumbag, and he's not to be uh, like respected by any means. I have suffered enough from them, and I'm just happy to survive this. So trust me on that one. They are not good people. They have hurt me, and I'm just... Carrying on as much as I can. Oh. Every time someone speaks about it, I have to remind us that this uh, oh, has been listen. tough, and I react very personally. Well, so I'm sorry to interrupt you, but uh, I just had to had to say this one out there. No, and I'm I'm you know I am uh, I, I'm shocked and very sorry to hear that. I, look, I don't want you to think I'm saying anything good about this guy. I mean, he is absolutely despicable, and you know what he is doing in Africa. Look, his guys are there with, with bayonets every morning, and they hoik these people out of their miserable hovels, and they force them to work in gold mines and in other places where they work them to death. And, uh, you know, that, that's what's going on right now in the Central African Republic. And, you know, Putin is eventually going to kill him. There's, there's no doubt about it. He, he's going to kill him. But he's absolutely one of the most despicable people on earth. So please don't construe anything I'm saying about this guy. I mean, I there's there's nothing commendable about him in my estimation, not even his survival skills. And he's he's not long for this world, folks. Putin does not forgive, he does not forget, and he is an inherently jealous man. And and he's look. Is Prigozhin a threat to to Putin? Of course he is. Absolutely, Putin's going to eliminate him. There's just no question about it. Hopefully they kill each other. That's all I can say. And Christoph, I'm very sorry to hear what happened to you. I, I, I'm you know I'm terribly sorry. And unfortunately, I don't think anyone in this audience is surprised that those disgusting, evil people would do something like that. Absolutely believe you, and I'm very sorry. Uh, thank you, Christops. Uh, thank you, Chuck. Uh, we have come to the end uh, of this edition of Bullet Points uh, here on Maria Report. <laughs> <laughs>